The following is a recording of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, visit gpts.edu. All right. Go ahead and get started here in just a sec. I had a good trip last week and good visit. So again, thank you for tolerating the online format for one week. I'm glad at least we got something done and are not uh, hopelessly lost here. Um, what I intend to do today is hopefully finish the section on the attributes of God. I know that's fairly ambitious because that's basically four and a half outlines we've usually been getting through uh, two and a half to three. But what I'll probably do with that in view is uh, I'll go through and finish a section and then pause for questions. And that way, hopefully I'll at least answer the core of it. I'll give you what you need to understand and apply the attributes. But then I know there's always other issues that arise. So I'll still allow time for that, but I'll try to just keep momentum going a little bit. And hopefully we'll get through most of this and then be able to pick up fresh with the Trinity and spend most of the rest of the time there as we come closer to the end of the course. What I want to do as we begin is read the first 19 verses of Psalm 89. This Psalm is about the Davidic covenant, which means verse 20 to the end is the main focus of the <clears throat> Psalm. But what I want to do is read the first part and have us all keep an ear out for the attributes and the names of God, because we see a good number of them here. And I think this might be a good illustration of how some of these things need to start standing out. I've got a big lump of cords under my feet, so I'm trying to figure out a good place to stand. <laughs> not, not your fault. I know. <laughs> we'll figure it out. Hopefully I won't trip on something. Um, all right. So Psalm 89, beginning in verse one. So just listen again for what it tells us about God. A contemplation of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant, David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. And the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the, saint, of the saints. For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You have broken Rahab in pieces as one who is slain. You have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Your, the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all its fullness, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them to bore and Hermon rejoice in your name. You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, and high is your right hand. 
Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all day long. And in your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. And in your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord and our king to the Holy One of Israel. Then you spoke in a vision to your Holy One and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from among the people. Well, even stopping there, we usually, I think, draw most attention to the latter part of the psalm because of the Davidic covenant. But hopefully you see even in the reading, there are terms like Lord of hosts, the Almighty, God's mercy, his righteousness, his justice, over and over again, his faithfulness, which ties into the covenant theme uh, pretty tightly throughout the rest of the psalm. But hopefully as we read the Bible, texts like these will begin to stand out and the names of God will inform our reading better and we'll pick them up as far as uh, understanding the text and applying it and declaring the glory of God better. Well, with that, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise your great and your majestic name. For you are a gracious God, full of compassion, abounding in goodness and truth. We thank you for revealing yourself preeminently through your son, Jesus Christ, by your word and by your spirit. And we pray that through your spirit, you would guide us to understand and apply the word this day. Help us to marvel at your glory. Help us to proclaim it to the church and to those who do not know you. And we pray that you would enable us to be bold, to be righteous, to be godly and zealous in all the works of our hands. And we pray that we would do so in humble dependence upon your spirit in all things. We confess our sins this day, and we confess how low our thoughts often are of you or how little we contemplate your glory. But we pray that you would use this course and use our time together as a means to revive our hearts and to renew our wills in your service and to fill us with the joy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as we proclaim him and his glorious grace to all who will hear. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, just one brief note. Some of you have been sending me paper topics, outlines. We've been discussing things. Um, if you send me a draft early, um, I'll do my absolute best to turn it around with a bunch of comments to try to uh, help you along, to try to improve that as well. So do keep that in mind. Uh, don't let it get out from under you as we get closer to the end. I know some are doing the reading assignment as well, which is also very good um, and good material, but do keep the deadlines in view. I know I said I'll, I'll go through some of the material and then ask questions before I do. Are there any, um, any questions offhand before I jump into the wisdom of God and finish up what we didn't quite get through last week? Go ahead, Joe. Just a brief logistics question. The catechism questions and book answers is due at the end of reading week or is it the end of... Um, I'll have a double check on Populi. Okay. Offhand, I thought it was uh, the Friday prior to reading week, but I can I can double check that. Whatever I put there, um, 
I will hold to. So yeah, I do have December 10th for that. So you have the paper coming in the Friday before um, or the week before, and then you would have the reading questions coming in on the 10th. So it does at least give you a little bit of time to stagger those two things. And the reading assignment will help you for the final exam as well. Let me just make myself a note. Go ahead, Kurt. Well, I was just, this might be something that you'll address later on as we go, but thinking about the attributes of God, one of the things that I've seen happen quite frequently, especially with younger guys out of seminary, is beginning to teach either, either Sunday schools or sermon series on the attributes of God. And with a lot of struggle over taking really sort of complex and different, I mean, difficult topics yeah. that we're dealing with. Right. And making them accessible, chewable, beneficial, uh, applicatory. And it's not that they're not, it's just that it, it appears to be a real challenge and difficulty. I'm just curious if you have any thoughts, suggestions, uh, guiding principles, just pastorally on how to help our congregations make use of the information. Yeah, and I mean, I think when we're dealing with the attributes of God, if if we're approaching the topic correctly, in spite of its difficulty, it ought to be devotional. I mean, obviously, we're setting before people the glory of the Lord, we're contemplating the glory of the Lord, we're living before him. Um, I think, among other things, if you're teaching a course on the attributes of God or the names of God, it's useful to have a guide. And uh, one modern book that I really like on the topic is Mark Jones's God Is. Okay. And basically, he explains the attributes of God and then filters them through the person work of Christ in each chapter. So it gives a very clear gospel focus and devotional bent to okay. the whole book. So something like that would be a good guide. Other things will give you piecemeal. I, I think uh, as, as you're reading Bob Inc., Bob Inc.'s discussion of the attributes of yeah. God, I think is very good and very clear. As far as some of the devotional embassies, you'll probably need to expand a bit. And part of that, I think, comes best through the text that you use. So we've used Psalm 90 many times about God's eternality, show how that works. That helps keep things grounded much better than getting into abstract discussions. Um, another good uh, modern treatment would be, for example, um, Beaky and Smalley's systematic theology, where they do have more explicit application and aiming at the heart. They also have very good uh, exegetical sections, so dealing with God's holiness. Most of the chapter uh, expounds or at least begins expounding Psalm 99, which deals with the holiness of God mm -hmm. and other chapters on the attributes do the same thing. So that'll give you at least a framework for what are some of the key texts, um, what are the key ideas, and then the key applications. So having a guide like that, there are, there are many, many others. Um, you know, in terms of uh, classic stuff, you've got uh, Charnock's existence and attributes of God is a big one. Um, and there, there are many others I could list as well. Um, if I can make a, a caveat here, 
I would say uh, this opens a big can of worms and I think I've already given you hints of it as we've been going through, but um, the 19th century is problematic on some of the attributes, especially things like eternality, impassibility, um, and things related to those attributes. So at least be aware that if you're reading Hodge, even to some extent, uh, Shed, Dabney, others like that, you're going to find something that's different on those points than what you find in the rest of the Christian tradition. So just be aware, since they are uh, fairly standard texts that we mm -hmm. encounter. You know, it's, it's kind of like uh, in pastoring and preaching, you're always um, uh, searching and hunting for material and gleaning a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit from someone else. And rarely do you find one source that just gives you everything you want, you know, especially for preaching. So you, uh, you work through exegesis and you need to layer it with a bunch of other things. Okay. What about like Ben Maastricht? Yeah, Maastricht is great. You know, is another good one. Um, yeah, certainly valuable. I, I can keep going. I mean, there's, there's lots and lots of material. But these are some of the ones that are available that you would know. And there are more. All right. Well, let me let me deal with wisdom very briefly. We dealt with the knowledge of God. What do we mean when we talk about the wisdom of God? Well, generally, when we talk about wisdom, we refer to the skillful application of knowledge. In other words, knowing what to do with what you know. And so for us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, or keeping the commandments is the fear of the Lord, and walking in wisdom before the Lord. God's word is our wisdom in Deuteronomy 4, Psalm 119. But ultimately, what we'll see as we go through the attribute of wisdom is Christ himself is the wisdom of God and the power of God to salvation in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. So we dealt with 1 Corinthians 2 for prolegomena issues and defining theology in relation to the Holy Spirit. But we also see Christ has become for us wisdom from God and righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. The world through its wisdom did not know God. Christ, as it were, embodies the wisdom of God as applied to our redemption. In some ways, um, I guess on an autobiographical note, in hindsight, and maybe this partly gets into Kurt's question too, um, how do you make these things practical? How do you bring them home? Well, in my conversion, I was not uh, confronted necessarily with a presentation of what the wisdom of God is, but I did have a friend who came to me and explained why Christ died on the cross. And basically, the issue is that as we're dead in our sins, as we can't help ourselves, there's nothing we can do to remedy our situation or our problem. God does what God alone can. God sent his son, and God's son became man. And in becoming man, Christ was able to offer the obedience that we owed as a man. And also, Christ had a righteousness that honored God's eternal character that could meet the demands of justice. If he wasn't man, he couldn't suffer. And if he wasn't God, his suffering wouldn't be worthy of the atonement we need to, to save us from our sins. 
And effectively, I think what's going on there is, is the summary I'm giving there and probably what came home to me is really from 2 Corinthians 5, that he made him who knew no sin be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But I think this is part of what Paul is getting at when he describes Christ as the wisdom and power of God to salvation. In other words, God not only knows all things, but God skillfully uses what he knows. God is able, especially in the cross, to bring about a way of salvation that meets our need and honors his character at the same time, which is ultimately done through incarnation. I won't go through all the texts dealing with the wisdom of God. There are a few really important ones. Um, Job 28, for example, is a, a soliloquy or meditation on wisdom and man's lack of wisdom, but then God's unfathomable, unsearchable wisdom. Um, you also have the Proverbs throughout, but especially perhaps Proverbs chapter 8, applying wisdom to God's uh, eternal plan, also applying wisdom to creation. I won't get into all the details, but the history of the Christian church has uh, typically seen wisdom there in Proverbs chapter 8 as the pre-incarnate Christ through whom the world made the world, uh, the Lord made the worlds and through whom he delights in the sons of men and redeems them from their sins. Uh, so I'm just throwing that out there. First Corinthians 1 uh, and 2 connects the wisdom of God to salvation in Jesus Christ in particular. There's a lot of things that I can say here. I think one that needs to stand out preeminently is that the wisdom of God is both perfect and unsearchable. And why that is important is especially as believers or maybe as ministers counseling believers, people struggle with the providences of God and struggle with the wisdom of God under different circumstances. And basically, what's the common refrain? Why is God doing this? Or how is this working for my good? I know Romans 8.28, but how does that help? All things work together for good. I just can't see the good in this trial in getting cancer and losing a child and losing a job um, in dealing with, with abuse in families and dealing with apostasy, anything that you can add onto the list and the, and the list can go on and on and on and on. And the issue ends up becoming, uh, what is God doing? I don't understand why God is doing what he's doing. I think when the scriptures appeal to the wisdom of God, I mean, Psalm, uh, Isaiah 40 would be another place where this comes out very, very prominently in dealing with the return from the exile and learning to trust in the wisdom of God. Uh, I think we need to recognize that we need to exercise faith in the perfect wisdom of God. In other words, the real question is, is not do you understand what God is doing? But do you trust the God who's doing it? Do you trust his character, in other words? 
And in a rudimentary way, we see this with our children, don't we? That our children first have to learn to obey authority and obey commands because they don't understand what the consequences of running out into the road past the bushes where a car can't see them going out of the end of the driveway. But they do need to understand, I trust my dad, I trust my mom, and I need to obey their authority. And so it is with God, isn't it? That first and foremost, we need to ask ourselves, do we believe the wisdom of God is perfect, even if we don't understand his ways? Do we exercise faith in the wisdom of God? But the other reason why this is important is sometimes people will, will use language like, well, when we get into heaven, you know, we don't understand how everything fits together now, but we will one day. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, maybe we'll understand, I'm, I'm sure we'll understand much more than we do now about our circumstances in our lives and how all the pieces fit together. And this will contribute to marveling at the wisdom and the glory and the goodness of God. But at the same time, who can understand the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor that he can instruct him? His ways are unsearchable. His judgments pass finding out. These are all scriptural expressions. And when we think about the providence of God and the sovereignty of God, we need to remember that God not only knows from the end, of the, the end from the beginning, he knows the consequences of the cars driving down the road next to us while we're in class right now of all the lives in this room here, of all of our families, of all the seemingly incidental things that happen to every single one of us, of how all of our lives intersect with every other thing that happens in the world. And, uh, and when we think about the wisdom of God, we're ultimately drawn back to, if I can slip back into a theological language, archetypal theology. God knows things differently than we do. He knows things more extensively, but there's also a qualitative difference. And I believe for all eternity, we will be praising God for his unsearchable and unfathomable wisdom. We'll know more of the depths of it, but we'll still be saying, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his ways, his judgments pass finding out. And I think this should comfort us, especially in times of affliction and trial and in counseling others. We always need to direct ourselves and direct others back to the character of God. And also what I mentioned at the beginning with the cross of Christ, if God displays his wisdom preeminently in sending his incarnate son to save sinners in a way that no one but God could devise, then we ought to not only rest in his wisdom generally, but consider his goodness displayed in his wisdom. If he brings the greatest good out of the greatest evil, namely the cross of Christ, how much more so with all other things. And so we go back to the cross. I could say a lot more here and, uh, and in the history of the church, um, <clears throat> sometimes attributes are appropriated to the persons of the Trinity, um, authority, for example, to the Father and um, or or uh, yeah, let's leave it there. And, and wisdom to the Son, then uh, powerful operation to the Holy Spirit. We need to recognize all three persons work in everything that God does, because the Trinity, uh, the persons of the Trinity are not incidental to God or accidental or extrinsic to God, but God is triune. 
And so the persons are integral to the divine being and not separable from it. Um, and yet at the same time, certain things are appropriated. And I think I've at least said enough to help you realize that uh, Christ does embody the wisdom of God applied to salvation because that divine work terminates on the incarnate son. He's the focal point, in other words, of what God is doing. Just as um, love in our hearts terminates in the person of the spirit, the spirit is shed abroad in our hearts and the love of God is poured out in our hearts with him. We love one another in the spirit. And so often there's these uh, appropriate works applied. Is there any, any other uh, questions, comments dealing with the wisdom of God? I've summarized this. I've tried to just get to the core of it and at least uh, verbally lead you to the text. I've got more listed in the actual outline. Um, and, and in many ways, with something like this that's so large, we could keep going too. But hopefully the main idea is clear at least and the main application. Maybe I should say by way of summary, um, you want to be careful with how you say this to people, but um, when people ask the question, why is God doing A, B, or C, my first thought, at least for myself and my experience is, I'm not sure I could understand even if God told me. You know, in other words, uh, that's what the incomprehensible wisdom of God means. But his character means I can trust him and trust that he's wise. All right, well, let's keep pressing on then and move uh, to uh, section 12, which is the holiness, righteousness, and justice of God. These things seem to be uh, group, grouped together fairly neatly. And in the catechism, where we are is uh, most holy, most just. Notice that there's two terms there, most holy, most just. I'm lumping in a third that is righteousness with holiness and justice, partly because righteousness is often associated with holiness. In fact, when the Lord tells us, be holy for I, the Lord, or your God, am holy, perhaps we immediately think and should think in terms of being renewed in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness after the image of him who created us. In other words, righteousness and holiness go hand in hand and are inseparable. If there's a shade of difference in righteousness and holiness in that verse, um, perhaps as, as some authors like Charnock have suggested, the differences between uh, the internal and the external, or what we call piety and religion, which one is which is a little bit harder to determine, uh, because both terms are often used in scripture to encompass the whole Christian life. So, for example, uh, Psalms 111 and 112. The key verse or verses in both Psalms are his righteousness endures forever. And to whom does it refer? Psalm 111, the righteous God, his righteousness endures forever. Psalm 112, which Paul quotes in 2 Corinthians 8, exhorting us to be generous and give, uh, is uh, the saints, their righteousness endures forever because the man who is generous, the man who lives a righteous life is imitating the character of the righteous God. And so God's holiness and our holiness are connected, 
God's righteousness and our righteousness are connected. And there are different ways the scriptures can use the term righteousness as well. And we'll get into some of those as we go through. But the basic point that I want to get into here um, is that God is holy and righteous. And also in his holiness and righteousness, he is just. And I'll explain what the terms mean. So basically, we'll move from holiness to righteousness to justice, try to define each of the terms um, and try to work out not only the scriptures behind them, but some of their practical implications. So first, to what does God's holiness refer? Uh, maybe many of you are familiar with R.C. Sproul's most famous book, the holiness of God. Uh, it's not a bad thing to be best known for a book on the holiness of God as your life's legacy, uh, but that was basically one of his seminal works that, that made him more well-known and was a bestseller, and this is a good thing. But how does he approach the issue of holiness? Uh, well, basically, more or less, and this is a summary, uh, he and others will note that in the past, people understood holiness simply as ethical purity. But fundamentally, in the Bible, holiness means separation. So in other words, when we talk about the holiness of God, we're not just talking about his, his moral virtue or his ethical purity or his ethical superiority uh, to everything else, but we're talking about the fact that God is one. God is unique. God is in a category by himself. And he is the creator. In other words, we are the creatures. There's a vast gulf between us ontologically. There's a difference between God and man is what we're getting down to. But what I want to present here is I don't think we should have to choose. I've got a bunch of authors cited here giving different um, uh, statements about holiness. I think uh, Bob Inc. and especially Beaky and Smalley present things more along the lines that I'm, I'm giving you here, but you can find things like this in Maastricht and uh, older authors as well. But I think as we think about the holiness of God, we should think both of his otherness, his separateness, in other words, and we should think of his ethical purity. And I want to say something about both of those. Um, in terms of God's separation from creation, I think Sproul and others are right that this does seem to be the primary idea when we speak about the holiness of God. When we encounter, for example, Isaiah chapter 6, which is a very famous passage dealing with the holiness of God, the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy. The Trinitarian hymn we sing in chapel, of course, today is based on that, but filled out with a New Testament picture. The same uh, refrain is used in the book of Revelation, especially in uh, chapters four and five, where you have the father seated on the throne, the lamb appearing before him with the seven spirits of God. And so the Trinitarian uh, content of that, that uh, hymn that we sing is actually pulling in Isaiah 6 and Revelation and, and putting it into Christian devotion, I think in a, a way that stood the test of time for good reason. 
uh, because it's tying together so much of what the scripture says here. But there's a couple of things we should note about Isaiah chapter 6 that help us understand the holiness of God. First of all, the people are unholy and unrighteous at the time. The people are liable to God's judgment. After five chapters of, of preface, as it were, now the prophet is receiving the vision that sets the tone for the entire ministry before him, and that is the holiness of God and the sinfulness of the people, the willingness of God to save those who hear him, and the unwillingness of the people to listen to the God who saves. That's basically the tone of Isaiah chapter 6. So while the king, Uzziah, who reigned for 55 years, longer than any other king save Manasseh, who comes later, who is the worst of all, he dies, and Isaiah sees the eternal king, seated on his throne, high and lifted up above the temple. The train of his robe is so, so long, showing his, his royal splendor to such an extent that it fills uh, the temple with his glory. And as the posts shake, even the angels themselves veil their faces in the presence of God. This brings us into the first aspect of holiness, because what's implied there? Well, these are not sinful beings. In other words, these are not unrighteous creatures that need to be forgiven and need to be redeemed. But this is... These are sinless angels who worship God day and night, and they still veil their faces before the holiness of God. And even from the one text, I think we're warranted to say the first thing that holiness actually means is to be separated or set apart. And we'll come back to how this relates to us, too, and how, how we reflect uh, God's holiness. In other words, the first thing that I'm saying is, Holiness is absolute. Holiness defines what it means for God to be creator and not creature. So holiness in terms of separation preserves a creator-creature distinction. However, remember I say uh, many times when, um, uh, when we encounter a problem or a lopsided emphasis on one truth, we don't solve the problem by rushing the opposite direction and stressing the other part of that truth. How many heresies in the church arise for doing just that? So, for example, you have people that only talk about justification resulting in people that only talk about sanctification and never go back to justification and turn the gospel into a, a legalistic foundation and forget what's important because someone else has neglected something else that's important. And we need to be careful here when we think about this, because it's interesting, isn't it? After God stresses holiness as separation in Isaiah chapter 6, what's the next thing that happens? Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. So in light of God's otherness in light of God's separation from creation where even the angels veil their faces before his sight the first thing Isaiah is aware of is his sin so in other words God is holy and separate in a category by himself and I'm a creature that's the first thing 
The second thing is God is holy and ethically pure, and I'm not. I'm a sinner, and I need to be cleansed. And so as the Lord then symbolically cleanses him by putting the coal upon his lips, equipping him to minister as a prophet, basically what happens at the end of the scene is the prophet uh, says to God, here am I, send me. He's forgiven, of, or he's seen the glory of God, he's forgiven of his sins, and now he says, here am I, send me. In fact, that's not that different from all of us as we think about the call to the ministry, is it? We need to see something of the glory of God by his word and spirit. We need to know him for ourselves and make him known. We need to be assured of the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus Christ and filled with wonder at the glory of God and love to Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. We say, here am I, send me which is why it's so important to keep going back to one of our ordination vows. What's your primary motive for pursuing the ministry? Because you know, the next thing that the Lord tells Isaiah, go, and I'm paraphrasing, but only a tenth will hear you. So 90% of your church is not going to like your preaching. And they're not going to be converted. And they're not going to listen to your efforts of discipleship. And as you wish them well, you're going to have sorrow as a pastor by seeing them fall under the judgment of God. What do you do in that kind of circumstance? I mean, in my short life, I've had one ministry like that and another one that is the exact opposite. And how do you get through it? It has to be, do we have a sight of the glory of the holy God? through his word, by his spirit, are we assured that he's our God in Jesus Christ? And out of love for Jesus Christ, do we say, here am I, send me? That's the fundamental thing. You know, people say, I want to pursue ministry because I want to use my gifts. Or I want to pursue ministry because I want to see people come to salvation in Christ. We should want those things. But that's, that's too low. We need to reach higher because people may not appreciate your gifts as much as you do. People may not uh answer the call as much as we want and as much as we pray for what do we have left we have what isaiah has we have the holiness of god and the holy god who forgives sinners and the god who has forgiven us sends us to preach his glory to others so we can preach as an act of worship we can ministry out of love to christ whether they hear whether they refuse even though when they refuse it causes great sorrow to our hearts and we weep over them, we plead with God for them, etc. But it's this that keeps us going. So there's a very practical bent to this chapter dealing with the holiness of God in Isaiah chapter 6. Of a way of summary, what I'm getting at is, and I'll, I'll pull in some other texts to correlate some of this, but this is a handy place to begin and something that neatly outlines itself and pulls you through the story and gives you the main uh, components that we need in thinking about the holiness of God. Uh, first of all, holiness refers to God's uh, separation from creation. I don't just want to use technical terms, but his ontological distinction from creation. The creator-creature distinction. And in this sense, holiness is an absolute attribute. But on the other side, as Turretin points out, holiness is not only an absolute attribute but a relative one because it does refer to ethical purity as you think of um isaiah 
encountering the holiness of God and crying out, woe is me, I'm undone, for I dwell in, I'm a man of unclean lips, dwelling in the midst of the people of unclean lips. It always reminds me of the scene where Peter uh, encounters Jesus for the first time. And Jesus tells him to cast the nets into the sea. And then as they've been fishing all night with no catch, suddenly all the, the fish in the sea jump into the net and uh, they struggle to, to reel it in. What's the first thing Peter says? Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. So in other words, there's a connection here. This person is like no one else. This is the person whom later when he calms the sea, the disciples say, who can this be that even the wind and the waves obey? And as Jesus Christ is, is encountering people, what they are realizing is they're actually encountering God in Jesus Christ. And Peter at least recognizes the same thing Isaiah does. We're in the presence of a holy God. Woe is me. I'm undone. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And if it weren't for the mercies of God in Jesus Christ, then who could stand before God's presence? If the Lord should mark iniquity, who could stand before him as Psalm 130 puts it? But with him, forgiveness is to be found that he may be feared. So how do we relate the two things? Because the ethical purity issue is a creator-creature relationship. In that respect, what we're saying is holiness is both absolute and relative. And so it says uh, quite a bit. Well, let's illustrate this in, in a few different ways, especially getting to the issue of our sanctification. Um, but holiness often um, enforces... Well, we'll come, we'll come back to righteousness in, in just a moment. Before I do that, I'm dealing with this a little bit out of order. Um, let's deal with sanctification first, then come back to the term righteousness and just say a few more things. Because it is related. And it relates to holiness in, in part B, the second meaning, as ethical purity. Um, it's interesting in scripture that holiness is used in both ways of God's people, too. So, for example, um, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. That's what God says to Israel. He set them apart literally from all the nations of the earth, even though he can say in Deuteronomy 32, they're not my children. They are my children whom I bought of the land of Egypt. But the next verse, they're not my children because basically in their hearts, they turn astray. But there's a, a broad external sense in which they are objectively set apart from all the nations of the earth. I mean, that's true in the church today. Every baptized person is set apart from the world, whether they're born again or not. God's name is upon them. God's mark is upon them. I mean, for this reason, I, I say more than this, but I'll often tell my children, sort of tongue in cheek, you know, you, you don't have the right to be non-believers. You know, nobody does. But God has put his name upon you specifically before you knew anything about him, which you turn that around and say, that's also your greatest blessing and your greatest privilege. That from the earliest days of life, before you were aware of God, he was aware of you. And he put his name upon you. He gave you his promises. And he gives you every possible encouragement to believe uh, in him. But uh, we recognize there is a... Uh, objective external setting apart 
not just objective external, but that's true of us as individual Christians as well, isn't it? If we're born again, we are set apart from the world. There's more to say. We have died to sin. We are alive to God in Jesus Christ. Because of our union with Christ, it's not just a matter of living uh, righteous lives before God, but it's a matter of the, the power of sin being dead, the power of sin being broken, our relationship to sin being permanently altered and changed. What can be more encouraging in the process of sanctification, in spite of our failures and our discouragements, than to say, I'm united to Christ, I'm dead to sin, I'm alive to God, sin shall not have dominion over me, therefore, I can change my practice. I don't have to present my members as slaves to sin to obey it may be a hard road, it may be a long process, but I can become holy as the Lord my God is holy, as I become an imitator of God as his child. I'm, I just completed Leviticus 11, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 and 2, and then uh, ultimately Ephesians 5, all into one there. But it's important to, to recognize that there's a parallel here as well. We as the church are a people set apart to God, distinct from the world, even as God is set apart, distinct from creation. In a dim way, we mimic that. But then specifically, as God is pure and righteous and holy, we are to be pure and righteous and holy. And so we reflect both aspects in different ways. Now, this ties into righteousness, which I've, I've implied all along. I won't say a lot about this here. I'll just cite um, uh, a few examples in terms of, of righteousness. This comes up a lot, actually, in stressing um, uh, questions related to, exa for example, to the new perspective on Paul. Uh, basically, N.T. Wright, others will say that the righteousness of God in Romans chapter 1 refers to the covenant faithfulness of God. And therefore, there's no idea of Christ's law-keeping for his people or the imputation of righteousness to us, but it's simply the idea of God keeping his promises. And Israel uh, violated God's covenant by failing to realize that the Gentiles should be included, and they excluded them. And so by keeping the righteousness of God, we recognize God has put up new boundary markers of the covenant. And so staying in that covenant community using the right boundary markers, that's really how God is showing his righteousness, his covenant faithfulness. Uh, long story short, what that really means is um, if you're a baptized church member and you've not been excommunicated, then all is well with your soul in every case. And that's all that you need to think about. That's all that you need to consider at the end of the day. And there's parallels there to, uh, to federal vision with some different nuances. Um, but uh, that's ultimately where these things uh, go. What we need to recognize is God's righteousness does often enforce his faithfulness in scripture. So I mentioned Psalm 111 with his righteousness endures forever. That largely comes out in terms of God righteously keeping his promises because of his moral ethical purity that god cannot lie god cannot sin god cannot violate his own nature he will always fulfill his word 
So undoubtedly, there's an element of truth there. Our faith in God's promises rests on his righteous character. Reminds me of Abram or Abraham at that point, praying, will not the judge of all the earth be right in Genesis 18? Well, of course, the judge of the earth always does right, which will lead to the concept of justice in just a moment. Uh, but the issue here is that in God's righteousness, he does fulfill his promises. Mm -hmm. He is faithful to them and always acts in character. That doesn't negate the fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good. And the real problem we have is we who are unrighteous, we who fail to do good, need God in his righteousness to be faithful to his promises. But in order to do that, he has to make the unrighteous righteous. He has to wipe away all of our sins. He has to remove our guilt. He has to justify us, which I'm sure you're aware in, in the Greek text is actually the same word as righteousness, just verbal, turn into a verbal form. Uh, but basically the ideas are connected. So this doesn't have to be an either or category. Another uh, place where the righteousness of God enforces the covenant promises of God would be Psalm 71, for example where his faithfulness comes out uh, over and over and over again, and his righteousness is connected uh, to his faithfulness. Or um, Psalm 103, his righteousness endures to children and children's children. Clearly what that means is God righteously fulfills what he said he would do, and we can rely upon him because of it. But there's an ethical connotation behind all of these. God... Um, forgives the unrighteous god justifies the unrighteous by counting the righteousness of christ to them god righteously fulfills his promises and always does what he says he would do because he is uh, always in the right he is always the one acting uh, faithfully and righteously and we can't exclude these ideas from one another One thing here as well, we, we dealt with the wisdom of God and providence. I think the righteousness of God here overlaps a little bit as well, as does the goodness of God. And all the attributes start implying one another, as, as I said before. But if we should trust in the wisdom of God, are we not also saying, I may not understand what God is doing, but I know that the judge of all the earth will do right. This will come back later with uh, Turretson's example in connection to the will of God and dealing with Abraham offering Isaac. But isn't there something like this behind Abraham's willingness to obey God and offering Isaac? Go offer your son, your only son, Isaac. But God, in Isaac, my seed shall be called. If I offer my son, your promise can't be fulfilled. Have you misunderstood my words? Go offer your son, your only son, Isaac. Well, what does Abraham do, right? Rather than arguing with God, he obeys God. And basically, even if we don't always have an answer, we need to recognize that God is trustworthy. God always does what is right. And our failure to understand how the command and the promise fit together is a failure on our part. We don't always understand, just like our children don't always understand what we're telling them and what we're requiring of them. 
but do we trust the Lord? Do we trust his character and obey his commands? I think that's at the heart of what Abraham actually does. And that's why it's such a powerful example of faith. It reasons, of course, that God is able even to raise him from the dead and still keep the promise. But I need to trust God's promise. I need to obey his command. And ultimately, what do we do in a circumstance where we don't understand God's ways? Well, we trust his wisdom, but we also believe his righteousness. We may not see how the atrocities committed by human beings in the world today will turn out to the glory of God and the good of the church in the end. But do we believe that the judge of the earth always does what is right and is always righteous? So that's why I say it's akin to the questions I asked about the wisdom of God. We're dealing with the character of God. And you can begin to see, I think, why that's going to relate to the goodness of God, too. Do we believe that he is good and he does good? Let me just... Um, cap this off here. I think I've gone through most of the material, not necessarily in the order that, that is here, but we dealt with holiness as separation, holiness as ethical purity, let's say separation and relation. Creative creature distinction, creative creature relationship are both implied there. How that works out in our sanctification, how the term righteousness is related. Before I go to justice, any any questions, comments thus far? Go ahead, Caleb. Um, similar to, I guess this would be similar to like the perfection of God. Is is holiness? in the separation sense um ever separated i guess from god's attributes as more a characteristic of his attributes or or yeah sometimes um holiness or god being holy can be like the name of god where the name includes everything that god is so if we say god is holy he's separate he's one he's unique um which would it mean as he is in all of his attributes mm -hmm. So holiness is separation often does encompass all of God's attributes. Yeah, I think um, if you look through the use in Psalm 99, there's something like that there in particular. In 1 Corinthians 7, where uh, Paul was talking about more marriage, family, and whatnot, there's a statement in there about uh, being married to an unbeliever, but it makes a comment that as it is, your children are holy. Are holy, yeah. I haven't looked like I haven't done any language study into that. Part. This is just a thought coming out that deals with this. But um, is the entirety of the sense there just on the set apart from the world, like we were talking about earlier, or is there a? Well, I guess maybe. I guess maybe it encompasses all that. I was going to say, does it also encompass? sort of the promise of being found in Christ, but I guess that's really what we're talking about. As yeah, I mean, I think um, there's there's a, an interesting book, mostly on that verse, um, by Thomas Blake okay. in the 17th century called The Birth Privilege or the Federal Holiness of Covenant Children. 
And it's basically a, you know, 17th century uh, work explaining, you know, the language of federal holiness is in the Westminster Directory of Worship as well, in terms of why do we baptize children because they're federally holy before their baptism. And that verse is, is one of the texts that's, that's used. Um, I think at the very least, it does refer to this external holiness and separation from the world. If you ask, what does that mean for believers and their families? Well, it doesn't mean God will um, create a corresponding internal holiness in every single person. But it does mean, I think, that uh, they're heirs of the promises and God normally works in that way. So we can say, you know, not, not invariably, there are cases where, you know, you have uh, the believing parents, I think in Deuteronomy 22, bringing the unbelieving uh, child and saying, my son's a glutton and a drunkard and, and he's executed. And then it explicitly says the parents are guiltless in such a case. On the other side, you have First uh, Timothy 3 and Titus 1, where a man's government of his household, including the subjection and obedience of his children in relation to the faith, say something about his character. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, we rest in the faithfulness of God and all that's good that comes through us and our families, we attribute to the glory of God. Um, but we should be praying, for example, Lord, make us what we need to be too. You know, and, and enable us to continually direct the children to Christ, not just to show them obedience, to show them repentance, um, to walk before them. And I think all of the, the whole goes together, that God does make um, the families of believers heirs of the promises. We get into this in a lot more in, in ecclesiology when we talk about baptism and, and things like that. Um, but I'll just state my conclusion without showing my work at this point. Um, I, where we land there is all those promises of, I will circumcise your heart, the heart of your children after you, my law, which I put in your mouth will depart from the mouth of your children, my spirit in your heart, not from your children and children's children. Um, we rarely see fulfilled in the old covenant. Hmm. And if it's not fulfilled in the new covenant, it's not fulfilled at all. So in other words, I think we should come with faith, come with a greater expectation that the Lord will continue to work in the new covenant. Now that branches off into a million different pastoral questions and a million different situations. Um, you know, and I, I know you have some you think of and I have others, but right. um, but at least by way of just wrestling with the text, I, I, that's where I'm driven by way of conclusion without showing all the work right now. Yeah. But that would relate to federal holiness. All right, well, I'm gonna keep going with justice and cap off this section uh, before the break. All right, justice. Let me just run through it rather quickly. Uh, usually I, I try to make this a little bit more uh, attractive, but I think for the sake of our time, if I can achieve clarity, that's my main goal here. Um, what is the justice of God? Um, as Turretin puts it, basically justice is the constant will of giving each his due. 
So you can see why this is attached to the discussion of holiness, then righteousness, then justice, because holiness has two connotations. Righteousness picks up the second one. And then justice specifically applies righteousness uh, to giving each one his due. So, for example, and this, this is a relative attribute now, because there's no justice executed by the three persons of the Trinity upon each other in eternity or within God. But justice is relative to creation, which is going to raise some interesting uh, questions in just a moment. But the general idea is that God gives each one his due. If I put it that way, I mean, maybe off the top of your head, your mind is already going to some scriptural texts that approximately say the same thing. Um, I mean, again, will not the judge of all the earth uh, do right? And the day of judgment uh, is giving to all according to their works, uh, basically giving all uh, what they are due. And to the non-believer, there's a fearful expectation of God's judgment of wrath. To the believer, God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Justification for you and I is not a legal fiction. It's not God simply declaring something and pretending it's true, even though it's really not. Where we are right now, we are seated here, united to Jesus Christ. And that means his righteousness is our righteousness. When God declares you and I righteous, he's declaring what's true. We, we by our status, by our standing, we are righteous because of Jesus Christ's righteousness. So even there, God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. He doesn't dispense his justice to somehow exercise his love. Remember, God is his attributes. His attributes never contradict each other. They're never in conflict with one another. And when God justifies sinners, he satisfies justice as well as puts on display divine love and mercy and grace. You know as well as I do that people often pit these things against one another. Mm -hmm. And we have to pick our favorite attribute. God is love. God is not justice. And so, therefore, we need to stress the love of God, and there's no need to fulfill the justice of God. I mean, I think the simple refutation of that is just to say, is this really what the scriptures teach? I mean, the, the greatest proof of the justice of God needing to be fulfilled and God's inflexible tendency to give sinners their due is that when our sin was imputed to Christ on the cross, the Father did not pass him over. He punished sin even in Christ, who had never sinned and who knew no sin, because the justice of God demands the punishment of sin. We take that the other way and, uh, and say the justice of God, say in Romans 2, uh, rewards those who do well. We need to be careful with that one, though, because uh, in Luke, what does Jesus say? You've done everything required of you. You're an unprofitable servant. So in other words, um, it would be if Adam had not sinned or the angels had never sinned, uh, it would be unjust for God to cast them into hell. 
It would not be unjust for God to set an expiration date on their existence and say, now everything's wiped out. There's no heaven. There's no hell. There's nothing. They don't deserve punishment, but they don't deserve everlasting life or the fruition of God and the blessedness of God either because the creature is disproportionate to the creator. God is beholden to no one. Now, God's goodness over, overflows and abounds, and he shares his goodness and communicates himself to his creatures. Um, but these things about eternal life that I just mentioned will come back under the discussion of mercy and grace as we go to that later. But keep a mental place marker there because I think it's helpful uh, to at least recognize that at this point. The basic idea of justice is God's tendency uh, to give each his due. Usually, when we talk about justice, we talk about vindictive justice. Now, in uh, eschatology, we deal with the wrath of God and eternal punishment. So this topic is naturally going to push into that course a lot, a lot more than it does here. Um, but let me just mention one thing that comes up often and is something worth at least exploring. Often people will say, well, how is eternal punishment in hell proportionate to crimes committed in time? In other words, it seems a, a, bit, uh, a bit out of whack, a bit over the top, a bit disproportionate, uh, maybe an extreme reaction. But again, we need to understand the justice of God in terms of the holiness of God. Again, if God is infinite, un eternal, unchangeable in every aspect of his being, the being we've sinned against is infinite in glory. And the weight of that crime is also infinite and deserves his infinite punishment. The only reason why Jesus Christ could bear the wrath of God throughout his life, but preeminently on the cross, is the dignity of his person. Again, this goes back to what I said before about wisdom. If Christ were not God, he wouldn't have the dignity to match God's dignity. If Christ were not man, he wouldn't have the ability to suffer and obey in our place. And he had to be both or we couldn't be saved. And so when we think about the justice of God, we think of vindictive justice. We recognize uh, that, that sinners do deserve eternal punishment for every sin because the God against whom they've sinned is eternally glorious. And the eternal son, equal in power and glory, the father become man is alone able to bear that curse and to remove it from us so again justice is not set aside justice is fulfilled and i think what i'm saying here uh, makes sense of a lot of different things in terms of especially god being just and the justifier of the one who has faith in jesus christ i mentioned the central importance of exodus 34 uh, many times dealing with the names of God in the Bible. I have a reference here connected to wrath from Nehemiah 1, where the same words are used, but that the language, both in Exodus 34 and Nehemiah 1, is God will by no means clear the guilty. Well, that would be terrible news, wouldn't it? 
if that were the end of the story. And, and you know, you'd almost be wondering if you're reading about the holiness of God in the Bible and God's tendency to give everyone what they're due, how can God say that he's merciful, gracious, full of compassion, and will by no means clear the guilty at the same time? Well, clearly he will by no means clear the guilty, meaning those who are apostate, those who rec uh, reject the covenant, those who turn their backs on God, uh, but also, strictly speaking, God never clears the guilty. God only declares the guilty righteous in Christ and removes their guilt and punishment in Jesus Christ by imputation. Talking a lot about justification today, but I think this illustrates why it's so important and why this is such a, a vital hinge of the gospel that we can't lose. Our sanctification, our renewal in the image of God is not enough because it doesn't satisfy divine justice. It may uh, reach up to divine righteousness or holiness in the second sense, but bypasses divine justice if we move to sanctification and bypass justification uh, as Roman Catholicism does or redefines justification to make it a different kind of sanctification. We need both because the way God saves us honors God's attributes. It's one of the things um, very striking in, in Owen's little book on the marks of saving faith. And what he basically says is the, the first thing that marks out a Christian. And, and the one thing regeneration does about everything else is we delight in the gospel because of the way that it glorifies God. We love the way in which God displays his wisdom and honoring all of his attributes all at the same time. And basically, he, you know, Jonathan Edwards says something similar and basically says the first thing that changes in regeneration is your view of God. We don't want to dispense with the character of God. As we think about salvation, we revel in the character of God and we delight in the God who honors all of his attributes, even as he saves us in Jesus Christ. Like I said, uh, dealing with the wisdom of God, I may not have been able to articulate it that way at the time, or the person evangelizing me may not have been able to either, but this is exactly what the Spirit used to drive the gospel home to me, to begin to see this, to begin to put together the glory of God in the salvation of sinners in Jesus Christ. And basically, that's what we're getting at here, dealing with the justice of God. There is a question that I, I should at least mention. I don't want to get hung up on it. I will take questions, will the good discussion if, if uh, you want to. Um, but in the history of the church, starting in the Middle Ages, um, the question became... Um, is divine justice an essential attribute of God? Essential or relative? I already said it's relative in some sense because it relates to how God uh, deals with his creatures. But um, maybe that sounds really obscure. And these are people like Aquinas and Scotus and others that are, are debating this who to get into some, some difficult questions. But um, a different form that you'll find in, say, Samuel Rutherford, William Twist, other people from the 17th century, be something like this. Uh, is the atonement of Christ 
absolutely necessary or hypothetically necessary. And let me explain what that means. If it's absolutely necessary, then divine justice is an essential attribute of God that must be met. And this is the only way this could be remedied is by the God-man taking on human flesh and dying for his people, etc. Um, if it's hypothetically necessary, the atonement is only necessary because God ordained it, but he could have saved us any other way he wanted. Uh, Dun Scotus, for example, and just to give you a medieval example, would actually say um, that God's um, will logically precedes his attributes, which may sound like a weird thing for us to think about. You know, Aquinas would say attributes then will. And so the way that comes out is God always wants to act like himself. God always wills to act in character, in other words. So you put it simply in that way. Um, the other way is basically saying God can do whatever he wants. If God uh, chooses, he can act, exercise justice, or he can simply just choose not to. He doesn't have to meet divine justice. Hmm. Now, if I put it that way, hopefully you're more sympathetic with the former than the latter because it, it, it it's, can have somewhat alarming consequences, can't it? Uh, basically, well, God can be good today and evil tomorrow. God can change the goal line. God can redefine what's good and redefine what's evil is a different way or better way of putting that because ultimately good and evil are dependent on, on God for their meaning. Um, you know, God can become what he's not. God can suppress some of the attributes and not exercise uh, some and exercise others. So that becomes part of the, the alarming uh, consequence here. Um, however, people like, like Twist and Rutherford, who are both part of the Westminster Assembly, are a bit more sober there and, and acknowledge that God is still immutable and God doesn't just exchange attributes and do what he wants whenever he wants and violate his character, potentially at least. Um, but we'll still say justice is not an essential attribute of God because it's simply relative. Um, John Owen took that position initially and then in his dissertation on divine justice recanted it and gave a 500 page argument as to why it's wrong um, and went the other way and, and went after Twist and Rutherford and some of these others by name as, as he did it. Um, let me just say this. I think, uh, I think the basic issue um, simply comes down to justice as a propensity or disposition to give all their due. So in other words, whether there's creation or not, that's inherent in God. God will always do what is right. And that's why I've connected this the way I have from holiness with two categories, moving down to righteousness and then justice uh, coming next, uh, because justice is really a consequence of the first two. It's holiness and righteousness expressed in relation to the creatures, but it's embedded in holiness and righteousness is, is what I'm implying here. And I think for most of us, um, we do tend to be more familiar with absolute necessity of fulfilling divine justice. The way I just presented the gospel to you all and, and explained the work of Christ here in some ways reflects that, doesn't it? 
I mean, we almost don't know how to pronounce, uh, explain the gospel otherwise, that, that God is just to the justifier, the one who had faith in, in Jesus Christ. God has to satisfy justice in order to justify the sinner because God is holy, God is righteous, and God gives all their due, and he honors his own character in the way he saves us. You don't need to do um, a lot with that, but for the sake of completeness, I think it's it's worth at least mentioning, and now and then you'll find it in the literature. Um, it'll come up in, in different places, and at least you can say you've heard of it, thought about it a little bit. Um, I'll pause there, though. Any, any questions, comments? Go ahead. It strikes me that the, the, the conversation itself has a, has a so then that follows in regard to how we deal with man's will. Yeah. As we would say, we would affirm that man's will flows from his nature. Yeah, that's correct. And so to say that that is somehow opposite in God would create a bit of a unity yeah well it gets complicated because um i'm reading a book right now for example uh by adonis vidu on um the same god who works all things so it's on the operations of the persons of the trinity and uh one thing that's insightful that he points out is modern social trinitarianism uh, which basically makes the trinity itself a social contract and, you know, applies that to human society, usually dealing with um, social problems and oppression and stuff like that. So in the history of the church, will was attached to nature. In present discussions, will is attached to person, which sounds like a subtle difference. Um, but think about it this way. Um, we would say Christ has two wills a divine will and a human will because what are we assuming a nature has a will so if he has a true human nature he has all human faculties including the human will but he also has the one divine will together with the father and the spirit and so there's two wills in christ but if will is attached to person and you have three persons in the godhead you have three wills in the godhead and you have a social contract or you have uh, the first person being in authority and the other two being in submission because will is attached to person instead of nature. Now, I know that can get in the weeds pretty quick, but, um, but it's something that's resonated with me, at least in terms of how people think of personhood. You know, modern yeah. times, it shifts, thing, shifts, shifts the discussion a bit. I think the question I would have on that then is, I mean, is there any sort of, I mean, we all have, ideas of what if but then you have to bring in light of scripture but is there is there uh, and maybe this is not for now but just that conversation where would be the evidence support or rationale for shifting that for shifting the conversation that way we're shifting in that direction um i think the answer would be complicated because i okay. i think it's more um it's more historical than biblical or theological. Okay. You know, it's shifting views of philosophy. What does it mean to be an individual person um, that comes out of uh, enlightenment thinking right. in particular? Um, and it's still there, even in the postmodern reactions to enlightenment thinking, mm -hmm. at least that, that 
uh, view of the individual self is still the same. I think it's, you know, yeah, we'll get, we'll get too far ahead here, but I mean, I think these questions are partly related to why people struggle defining personhood in Trinity as well. You know, because we think of a person as an individual willing subject. So then there are three individual willing subjects in God, and then therefore there's three gods or there's three people, you know, in God instead of uh, three relations of origin or two relations of origin and one unoriginated. Un Um, in regards to God's justice, um, it seems clear that I would assume like justification is kind of etymologically and also relationally linked to God's justice. Yeah. Um, but when right. we talk about the relationship between God's justice and our justification, is God not already just, I guess, is God not just toward those who are not justified. Yes. Yeah, God is just to those who are not justified. So, yeah. I guess I'm just maybe wondering how that that term became the term being applied to our being declared righteous. It almost seems like it ought to be instead of justified, like righteousified, you know, in, in the <laughs> sense that we're declared innocent. Yeah. But God's justice is served regardless. Yeah. Um, um there's more there though we could say um for example it's not just that we're declared innocent or forgiven but we are declared righteous and we share christ's reward and that's justice on god's part you know in other words we're saved by grace and by justice at the same time grace because we're totally undeserving and we can't contribute anything but justice, because it would be unrighteous for God to condemn a justified sinner. So in other words, when God uh, brings you and I into heaven on account of Christ's righteousness and we share in his reward, um, God would be wrong not to do it at that point. In other words, God would deny his own character to deny one in Christ. So I guess God's grace has been justified in us by the uniting of us to christ yeah our god um god honors his justice in um in christ as our substitute and us being united to christ it fulfills his justice you know it's it reminds me of um uh the text in um uh first timothy when uh we are faithless he remains faithful he cannot deny himself you know and it seems to be what paul is getting at is um god will deny himself before your salvation will fail if he can't deny himself he can't deny you that seems to be the the comfort that he's importing there but i think that relates to divine justice that uh, i can't remember which hymn it is but maybe some of you remember uh, one of the hymns we sing talks about, uh, I'm butchering it, but basically, you know, God fulfilling his justice and he can't demand the punishment of my sins twice, once at my Savior's hands and once at mine, you know, something like that. That that gets into this issue of divine justice. God would, God cannot condemn someone justified in Christ because he's fulfilled his justice and 
you know, again, it's not that God's arm is tied. You know, God has freely chosen sinners. God has sent his son to save them. God himself has um, uh, fulfilled the demands of justice. But uh, again, when we, we use phrases like 1 John 2, little children, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I mean, the name takes in all the attributes, including divine justice. And the comfort of a text like that is, is the Lord is literally saying, I'm putting my name on the line for your salvation. I'll sooner violate my name than I will lose you. And that should help us a lot, you know, and it encompasses divine justice too, though. There's a lot of rich uh, material here to meditate upon. All right. Well, let's let's stop there for now and uh, take a 15-minute break and pick up with uh, 13, the next section. I think in the title, I left off goodness in yours, but it should be goodness, love, mercy, and patience. And that's what we'll get into next. Grab some more water. Any coffee down there, Caleb? I'm not sure. Okay. Probably. But there's always someone making coffee. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. I take your word for it. <laughs> At least we'll get some walking in, if not. Yeah.
think I've got no members free book. I wish you didn't have to go in and click anything for the Logos free book. I wish they would just give it to you. Yeah, true. I think there's two this morning. Passage is longer, there's more indicated. The frequency is faster. This is the one we've been talking about. It's even very Thank you. 
has registration for next month's year open book yet? They're just doing winter. What is that winter one year? I don't know. I have the whole email. I can download it. I just need to send it. Thank oh, you already. It's for winter twenty twenty two. It's almost 2022. I'm not too sure about the professor again. What? I'm not too sure about our professor for reform worship. What? That guy. Yeah. Yeah. Are you taking the, the elective for the winter class? No, I'm not. Uh, I don't have time this spring to do one. And I'm at least one winter behind. And I'm already like a year behind, so that puts me like two winters behind. Are you taking one of those? Thanks. I've got to look back at it. I have, I like have my like plan laid out that I, I met with Mrs. Curdo and kind of like laid out how I can graduate eventually. <laughs> and, uh, I've got to work out that. But now my internet isn't working. Well, there is another volume of scripture and worship is only work. I'm supposed to be treating me with that stuff you look at. Go ahead. The internet says uh, originally it's Sibelian. Is the internet right? Originally? Yeah. <laughs> um, what does it give the dates? Sometimes there's more than one. Well, the digital Puritan may have his uh, body of divinity and larger catechism. Page. Yeah, that's a can of worms. Um, not exactly, but this will get into what we were talking about earlier with shifting concepts of personhood and you know the cusp of the enlightenment too. So he's weaker on uh, personhood. I think following the enlightenment, you lose the concept of person as relation of origin. If you lose the concept of person as relation of origin, there's no intrinsic order of father, son, spirit. And so he seems to fall into that category of basically the three eternal somethings in God, but not necessarily father, son, and spirit because relation of origin is not prominent. So following Calvin? So, uh, no, Calvin is more uh, separating uh, person and essence. But that's another story. We'll come back to that with, with the Trinity, with Calvin at least. But, uh, 
Yeah, my memory may fail a little bit with Grizzly, but I think there is a little waffling in person in there. <clears throat> Okay, um, let me jump into 13 and try to push through some of this and, uh, and see where we get. We have the goodness of God, the love of God, the mercy, grace, and patience of God. That's quite a, a mouthful, but hopefully with regard to holiness, then righteousness, then justice, you begin to see a bit of a logical series of connections with God's separateness and ethical purity manifested as righteousness and uh, and applied as justice in the right circumstances. Well, so when we come to the goodness of God, this is another broad category that encompasses many things. In the catechism, where we are is most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, abundant goodness and truth. Um, I went uh, out of my memory to the uh, the Bible verse where that comes from from Exodus 34. So you have Exodus 34 quoted and brought straight into the catechism. And now we're going to be looking at these attributes grouped together with the goodness of God. And for that reason, I'm putting the goodness of God first. And so when we think about the goodness of God, we're reminded in the scriptures in Psalm 119 that the Lord is good. And he does good. When the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, Jesus says, why do you call me good? There is none that is good except God or one that is good, only God. He's not denying there his deity as much as pushing back at the man saying, when you say good, do you understand what you mean by that? In other words, uh, your righteousness, your standard of goodness doesn't quite measure up. And when you think about God's goodness, you need to remember that God is in a category by himself and he requires perfection of you in heart, speech, and behavior. So goodness, you can see immediately, does have overlap and at least implies holiness and righteousness. And also uh, justice to an extent. It's good that God acts justly. But again, this is why I said divine simplicity is proved best by looking at the attributes themselves, because they all imply one another. These are not neatly divided categories. You know, it's ironic here, I suppose, as we begin the discussion of the goodness of God, that people will reject the God of Scripture by asking how a good God who is all powerful could allow evil into the world. And if there's evil in the world, there's no good God and there's no all powerful. But reminded of uh, reading one of C.S. Lewis's books, I, I can't remember whether it was uh, God in the Dock or something else I read recently, where he says the problem is that uh, the, when we talk about evil, we always presuppose the good. You know, we presuppose that the good is primary and dominant. So people pointing the presence of evil to reject God are still assuming that good is prominent. And if good is prominent, God is prominent. and goes back to the heart of the problem. Because if you take God out of the equation, what do you have? There is no good. There is no evil. 
start sounding like uh, the Sith. There's no good, there's no evil, <laughs> only power. Yeah. So when we deal with goodness, we have to begin with God. Otherwise, the concept of good and evil is gone. Just like righteousness, and that's why all these things are related. But what we're going to do that's a little bit different, instead of looking at holiness, righteousness, justice, beginning with a general idea of goodness, and then looking to further subcategories implied by goodness. And specifically, what we're going to look at is the love of God, the grace of God, and the mercy of God. Patience of God will come in at the end, but you see at that point, I don't have a lot to say about it other than to note it and to, to go to particular texts that deal with it. But let's deal, first of all, with the goodness of God. Um, <clears throat> basically, as, as Turretin puts it, the goodness of God, and as he says, the qualities contained under it, and notice what he lists, love, grace, mercy, are occupied with a communication of good, but diversely. God's goodness ultimately um, encompasses ideas like righteousness and justice, but God desires to communicate good things from himself to us as well. So again, this is uh, communicable. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord, for example, Psalm 145. Or God uh, does good to the just and the unjust. I'm importing the word good there, but he causes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Actually, the word that will come there to there is love, uh, but comes of the goodness of God. A lot of people will say, um, why does the shorter catechism not include God as love? And I think the main reason we ask that question is not just because 1 John 4 says twice God is love, but because in modern theology, people have stressed God is love as opposed to God is just. Now, let me just use the biblical phrase, God is a just judge who's angry with the wicked every day. That's what the Bible says um, in, in Psalm 7. Um, but people will say, well, love trumps justice, so God is love. So then we come back out of that context and say, when I read my shorter catechism, the word love isn't even there. So is that a defect? What I'm going to suggest here is whether we think um, it's a defect or not. And by defect there, I don't mean ideologically. I mean, um, in the sense that um, whether or not you agree with the people that say, well, God is love and that trumps justice, should justice be there explicitly because it is in the Bible? That's, that's a more legitimate way of asking the question, I think. I think what we need to do, though, is, is back up and understand uh, the thought process here. And remember, at the outset, there's no perfect way of categorizing the attributes. So there is more than one way to do this. Um, but the way that authors like Turretin and others engaged in the Westminster Assembly thought on this point is that goodness as God communicating his, his disposition to share himself and share good with other creatures manifests itself or shows itself in love, grace, and mercy. So when you say, where's love in the shorter catechism, or that, for that matter, the larger catechism, you say, under goodness. And this is the shorthand answer. And so the shorthand is going to include the longer parts, which you find in the Confession of Faith. 
and, and love is mentioned there explicitly. So regardless of what you think of the merits of that procedure, um, you, you could argue, I think legitimately as Truman and others have to, for uh, a case for mentioning love more explicitly because it is prominent in scripture, especially first John, but also the gospel of John, uh, Ephesians, a number of other places. But at least it's it's there, and this is a adequate attempt to encompass all of the attributes of God in brief form. And when I say adequate, that's not meant as a slight. That means that that's the best we can hope for, is something that's adequate but not perfect in terms of describing or summarizing the attributes of God. <clears throat> so the connection is that love is subsumed under goodness um and again when we're talking about the goodness of god we're not simply talking about um his absolute goodness in his own nature most of the time when we're thinking about goodness in scripture like the the earth is full of the goodness of the lord as i quoted earlier what we really mean is um God communicating his nature relative to his creatures, God benefiting his creatures, his goodness overflowing and abounding in all the works of his hands uh, and communicating himself to us. So with that in view in a broad category, let's take the pieces of it one at a time or the implications one at a time. So goodness is a big category, uh, love, grace, mercy are the subcategories and ideas embedded here. First, let's look at love. Um, Thomas Manton says that love in general is the complacency in the will in that which is apprehended to be good. So notice the implication of goodness, complacency in good. So in other words, uh, we'll get into different kinds of love, but if we're talking about um, the eternal love of the triune God as an absolute attribute, the Father perfectly loves the Son in the Holy Spirit. There's an eternal divine love that is exercised by God and terminates on God. And that's why I say absolute in that regard. Because God is the highest good. God is the sumum bonum, which was a, a key question in older works on prolegomena, what is the highest good? That wasn't just a key question in uh, prolegomena, it was a key question in people like Aristotle. What's the best life you can live? What's the highest good? How does my life really have meaning? I mean, these are the same questions people still ask. They often just give up and throw up their hands and just say, we can't answer these questions. We don't have an answer. Um, but God is the highest good. And God's love ultimately terminates on God because love is complacent in the highest good, as man can put it. Complacent, taking delight in, rejoicing in, resting in the highest good. So moving through this, love and God refers to his will to unite himself to his creatures and do them good. This is really when we're, we're talking about verses like God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes should not perish. Uh, God is love. By this we know the love of God.
that he uh, gave his son for us, that we might live in him. Um, Paul bows his knees to the Father, the maker of heaven and earth, that you might know the length, the breadth, the height, the depth of the love of Christ that passes knowledge. Uh, the benediction in 2 Corinthians 13, uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We'll come back to all of these texts, by the way, with Trinity and focus on what they say about the divine persons. But right now, what we're focusing on is most of the time when the Bible talks about the love of God, it focuses on God delighting in his creatures and communicating himself to them in love. Now, for sinners, that shows itself in God doing something about our sin, in God intervening, in God not leaving us to perish and get the misery that we deserve for our own faults. But it's God setting his love upon us, God communicating himself to us, God taking delight in us and delight in saving us through his son, Jesus Christ. So that's why Turretin begins with loving God refers to his will to unite himself to his creatures and do them good. So it's a particular aspect of uh, the goodness of God or expression of it. And notice I have under B, traditionally theologians describe three degrees of love and then I've got four points. Um, let, me, let me say I've got one general category and three specific categories. Generally speaking, when we deal with the love of God, we have to begin with God himself. We have to begin with the fact that it would be sinful for you to live for your own glory because God is the most glorious being. But it would be equally sinful for God to live for your glory instead of his own. Because he's God and you're not. In other words, that's why our pride, that's why our self-seeking is, is sinful. It's not pride with God. It's not self-seeking with God or selfishness, but it's right and proper for God's glory to be the highest good, even his own. And so with divine love, we begin with uh, divine love terminating on God, as I said before. Um, years ago, Bart Elshaw actually uh, was, was preaching at a Puritan Reform Conference on the love of God and uh, published this in a booklet with a series that Joel Beakey and I edit, but basically uh, what he gets at, picking up on Muhammad Sabrakal's teaching, is that the father loves his son more than he loves sinners. And the father saved sinners, glorifying his son, added of love for his son. And then he turns it around to the wrath of God and says, what can be more offensive to the father than to reject Christ? In other words, if God's love begins with God first and within the persons of the Trinity, then who are we to demand love as a right to us? We put things backwards. We suppose that God was altogether like us, as people do in idolatry all the time. Psalm 115, Psalm 135, other examples of this in scripture. So the three things that we should consider with regard to love um, to the creature are as follows. And, and what I'm really getting at, maybe I should raise the question first and then uh, give the three answers. But, but people will then ask, well, how does God's love relate to creation? Does God love all people? I remember being on uh, 
a college campus one time and somebody was walking by and, and saying, uh, God loves you and Jesus died for you. And, and I was already a Christian, but when I hear something like that, I don't want to be rude to people, but my first thought is just to say, thanks and walk away. I mean, think about it. If, if somebody's walking by and that's all they hear, God already loves me. Jesus already died for me. Why do I need to do anything? Why do I need to believe? Why do I need to repent? Why does anything need to change? Uh, everything is already good, right? Everything's already set. And But what are people getting at? Well, they want to say that in the gospel, God displays his love, which is certainly true. And in the gospel, God loves sinners and saves sinners, which is also certainly true. So that first example may not be the right way to state it, but it raises the question that does How do we address the love of God with respect to sinners? Turretin gives three categories that I think are helpful and are fairly standard. And he describes three different, let's say, degrees of God's love to human beings. The first is love to creation in general, not just human beings. But in other words, God loves the works of his hands. He loves the heavens and the earth, the rocks, the seas, the moon, the stars, the sun, because the heavens declare his glory. The firmament proclaims and shows forth his handiwork. And so there's a general love to creation. But let's narrow the circle a little bit more. God also has a general love to mankind. Normally, and this is something I want to stress here. Normally, the scriptures don't lay stress on this general love to mankind. Normally, the stress is on the third category, which is God's love to the elect. However, think about the text I've already alluded to. Why should you love your enemies? Maybe I should say first, how do you love your enemies? Well, you pray for them. You do good to them. You show kindness to them when they don't show kindness to you, etc. Um, but why should you do it? Because Jesus argues that's exactly what God is doing. Because God is loving his enemies. Now, a lot of people don't want that logical implication there and, and try to worm out of it, but I don't see how you can. I mean, love your enemies. Why? Because you need to imitate God. God's loving his enemies. Where do I see that? Well, he's causing his sun to shine. He's causing his rain to fall. He's taking care of people. He's feeding people. And, and what Turretin simply points out is this. There's a general love of God to all creation because it reflects his glory. There's a more specific love to mankind in general because they're made in his image and likeness. But then there is a special love to the elect, and this love alone is saving. So notice from the Matthew example that I've given you, Matthew 5. That's not pushing us back to uh, God loves you as a wonderful plan for your life. Or God loved you and Jesus died for you. That actually creates a, a Trinitarian problem, which we'll get to later. But I think, um, I think what we, we are getting at is God does show a general love, a general sharing of his goodness with the works of his hands, because they are the works of his hands, with man in particular, because man reflects his glory as God's image. 
but this is not the love by which Christ died for his people to save them from their sins or the love by which God bestows an eternal kingdom on us and an inheritance in Christ Jesus. I think the problem, just to not leave you hanging with what I said before with the, the evangelists, and again, you know, I appreciate people are out there telling people about the gospel, so I'm not going to criticize them too much. And, you know, we need to do more than we often do. And so, um, you know, we shouldn't be overly critical. But as we think about our presentation of the gospel, we need to remember um, we don't present benefits like detached love or detached forgiveness. We present Christ. And if they receive Jesus Christ, they see the love of the Father reflected in the mirror. And they can never see the love of God apart from Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus Christ, we're children of wrath, even as the others. We don't offer love to people. We offer Christ to people and in Christ, the love of God. That can sound like a subtle difference, but it has huge implications. We preach Christ Jesus the Lord and him crucified. And so we need to be careful here. And sometimes I think even going back to uh, scriptural expressions, it's not that you believe that Jesus died for you and God loves you. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus and you see that God is loved because he gave his only begotten son, etc. Um, and so we're presenting Christ to people. We're not presenting an attribute detached uh, or a benefit such as love. I think it's an important thing for us to keep in view. So there's a, a love for creation in general, a love to mankind as the image of God, and a love to the elect. Um, I don't want to twist our minds around this too much, but but you realize um, God loves his enemies by giving them rain and sun. Psalm 5, God hates all workers of iniquity. Both are true at the same time. And there's no contradiction. And I think the way we put that together is just to say God loves them because they're his creatures and they're meant to glorify him. They still do in spite of themselves. But God hates all workers of iniquity because they're opposed to his law. And the Bible says both and puts both things together. So we, again, we don't negate one attribute because of another. We put them together. Uh, but this is where some of these scholastic distinctions become a bit more helpful because at least they help us field some of these texts and have different categories in which to think. Another set of terms I'll just give you under C that I'm going to be, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with, um, but often uh, older authors will speak of God's love of benevolence, uh, beneficence, and complacency. So uh, benevolence literally uh, wishing well or, or uh, willing well, um, beneficence doing well, doing good, and complacency delight. And again, uh, when we're talking about complacency in particular, we're talking about his delight in his son, first and foremost, the father and the son. We're also taking uh, in view 
God's delight, complacency in his people who are in Christ, chosen in Christ or actually in Christ. But there's always reference to salvation in Christ here. That'll come back under the decrees and predestination, election, all that stuff. I think the, the categories that are given above though are probably sufficient at this point to get the idea. Um, and I do have uh, the three terms defined by Turretin in the footnote. Um, you know, his good will is his eternal will to do good to the creature. So that would be specific and, and largely uh, terminating on election. And then secondly, uh, God's good actions towards his creature in time, that can be broader. And that can include his providence and his care for the creation and even sinners. And then God's delight in his creatures on account of the rays of his image seen against them, in them. Again, the way he defines that, it could have a, um, a twofold reference. You could say creatures made in his image in some level. He takes some complacency, some delight in them because they reflect his glory. But the focal point here is election, redemption, eternal reward of his, his elect, in other words. That's why I gave the first three categories more attention, because I think it's easier to think through and process. Um, and then these are three other terms that tend to, to come out. We'll, we'll get back to some of these terms when we get to the will of God, and we keep pushing through the material. So that's coming. Let me try to deal with grace and mercy uh, briefly, then, then pause for a moment. Um, if we're thinking about the goodness of God and God uh, communicating his goodness in complacency particularly, or with emphasis there, we go to love. Um, but we next move to the categories of grace and mercy. Let me say a couple of things here. And I'm largely going to rely on Turretin. I'm going to make a few uh, modifications or expansions, as it were, on what he's saying here. Um, but notice the, the statement he gives initially gets us off on the right foot. Grace is God's will to communicate his love without any merit in the creature and notwithstanding its demerit. Now, I want to split that in half. Grace is God's will to communicate his love without any merit in the creature. Let's start there. I already cited the text from Luke that if you do what is required of you, what reward do you have for your only unprofitable service? Now, taking an implication of that, just to get the full scope of, of what grace actually entails, Grace is rewarding us without regard to our merits and as sinners, notwithstanding our demerits, giving us what we don't deserve, in other words. What that means is in the Garden of Eden, the prohibition to stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a legal condition of a legal covenant. Adam had to obey God. Adam had to put his obedience or God put his obedience to the test 
the symbol of the tree. But with that tree, God planted a tree of life. And the legal covenant had a gracious promise. In other words, the promise of eternal life embodied in the tree of life was disproportionate to the obedience Adam offered. He should have simply obeyed and said, I'm an unprofitable servant. What thanks do I have at the hands of the Lord? I don't follow his wrath. I'm not annihilated. But the tree of life is a gracious promise in a legal covenant. I think this is something that uh, got confusing or lost in recent years because of the federal vision controversy. For example, you had all these people that were coming out and saying there's no covenant of works. It's all one gracious covenant. Carl Barth said something like that for different reasons. Um, and then you have people the other way that would react and say, well, the, the covenant of works has no grace at all. Meredith Klein, those, those types of reactions. Um, most older reform authors, and, and you'll find this in almost any older systematic theology, um, or uh, for example, some of my favorite covenant theologies like Vitzius and Gillespie and others, uh, what you'll find there is exactly what I just said. This is a legal covenant. And the condition is perfect personal obedience to the Lord. It's different than the covenant of grace. There's no mediator. There's no Jesus Christ interposing the, between God and sinners. And yet at the same time, the promise of eternal life is disproportionate to the reward. I mean, disproportionate to the obedience. Therefore, the condition of the covenant works is legal. The promise is gracious. That's why I say I'm splitting what Turretin says in two, because he says this too. If you read him on the covenant of works, he'll, he'll argue the same thing. Um, but at this point, he's mostly got sinners in view because we have demerited God's mercies, God's favor, God's grace, and we deserve his justice. We deserve his punishment. We deserve his wrath. And so what we're thinking of is not just notwithstanding our merit, but in light of our demerit, how do we gain God's favor? And it must come to us by grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Grace and peace be with you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God has chosen us in Christ before time began that we should be to the praise of his glorious grace. And I could go on and on and on uh, through grace. Psalm 145, I mentioned with the goodness of God. It also says the Lord is gracious in all his ways and holy in all his works so sometimes i'll say uh you know usually in relation to lamentations three which will come to with mercy um whenever we think things are, are really bad even horrific whether we can fully grasp it or not could have been worse it should have been worse it's the mercies of the lord the grace of the lord in this case that things are not worse than they are. People say, why is there, why do bad things happen to the good people? Why is there so much um, uh, evil in the world? We really should turn that around and say, given that we're all sinners and rebels against God, why is there so much good in the world? You know, why is there there's so much that works right and, and turns out well? This is the grace of God, the grace of God generally, not the saving grace in Jesus Christ, but it's still notwithstanding our demerits and in spite of our lack of merits. So 
So grace is really giving people what they don't deserve, giving them beyond what they deserve. Mercy is the other uh, corollary here. Mercy respects misery. And Turretin here uh, gives a good contrast. And this, is, this doesn't work for what I said about Adam, but it does work for everything else we're talking about. Um, grace regards the sinfulness of fallen mankind. Mercy respects their misery. So in other words, sin is the cause of misery. So for us as sinners, not Adam before the fall, but you and I, grace is God giving us what we don't deserve, rewarding us beyond what we deserve, not in spite of our demerits and notwithstanding our lack of merit. Mercy is God pitying the miserable. So I mentioned it could have been worse, it should have been worse. There's a lot of great statements about the attributes of God in Lamentations chapter 3, and I think I've used it in, in other connections, but it's actually very powerful where the prophet is describing the atrocities committed in the exile or after the exile as he's weeping and lamenting for the people and crying out for God's justice against their enemies. And the climax is chapter three. And uh, there, the part that you'll know is uh, his mercies are new every morning, great is thy faithfulness. And that's where we get the favorite hymn, great is thy faithfulness, O God, my father, etc. Um, but what he's actually getting at there is, is very profound in, in deeper ways, because what he's actually saying is, as bad as this situation is, as much as we cry out to you for justice, vengeance, restoration, it could have been worse, it should have been worse. That's what he's saying when he says your mercies are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. In spite of all the devastation in front of us, in spite of how horrible our lives are in exile and how desperately we want to return and rebuild, your mercies are new every morning. We see your pity and your compassion on us in our misery, even while we're in misery. And really the mercy of God shines forth most radiantly in putting the misery of sin of Christ himself. Herman Vitius in the Economy of Covenants uh, somewhere, uh, I think on, it's on the suffering of Christ. I don't remember what chapter, but he actually starts the chapter by saying sometimes we make too little out of the sufferings of Christ by focusing on the cross. Kind of an interesting statement, isn't it? What's he getting at? The cross is the high point, but it's not the only point that Christ bore the miseries of sin for us. He was persecuted from birth. He suffered throughout life. The cross was the climax of a life of suffering and a way of sorrows for sinners. In other words, God took all the miseries of this life and laid them upon Jesus Christ so that all the miseries we experience because of sin are sanctified to us in grace. What that really means is all of our trials are transformed from the curse of sin and the misery resulting into the loving hand of a father who disciplines and trains his children in righteousness. So Christ transformed everything. God took pity on us and showed mercy to us in our misery 
which we brought on ourselves by placing all misery on his son and bringing mercy to sinners. So grace is giving us beyond what we deserve. Mercy is pitying us in our misery. Grace can have respect to Adam before the fall or uh, the will of Westminster larger catechism talking about um, election. It's, I think it's either question 18 or 19 actually uh, describes the election of the angels as being for the praise of his glorious grace. They're lifting the language from Ephesians 1 and the election of, of us, of God's people in Jesus Christ. And they're saying that uh, God's electing sinners is more gracious and more glorious than the salvation of the angels. But the fact that there are elect angels is still grace. He didn't have to confirm in grace. So in other words, grace can apply to sinless creatures and the sinners, preeminently the sinners. Mercy can only apply to sinners because misery is the result of sin. One of the last things uh, Turretson says here that's worth quoting is the mercy of God is an asylum for the penitent and the pious, but not a refuge for the impenitent and impious. In other words, we don't presume on the mercies of God because God pities those who are miserable because God is a compassionate God uh, and loves and delights to show mercy. We don't presume on that mercy. We rather take comfort from it. That God pities us. God knows us better than we know ourselves. God knew our sins before we committed them. And so let us not harden ourselves in sin. But on the other side, let us not be discouraged in the presence of sin. But flee to the merciful God immediately. And I think now you can see why long-suffering comes next. Uh, God's long-suffering is his patience, is putting up with sinners. Closely related to mercy in the sense of pitying people in their misery, but it goes a little bit further by saying that he actually waits. He's patient. And rather than twisting our minds around uh, questions of decrees and election and, and that type of thing. The Bible often just uh, reasons with people like Romans 2, for example, begins with this issue of the long suffering of God. In other words, do you despise God's patience, which leads you to repentance? So people should never look at the fact that they're still alive and living in sin and say, maybe I'm just not elect. But they should say, look at the patience of God to me. And he's given me one more day to repent. I better listen now. I better turn today while it's still today, before it's too late. That's, that's Paul's reasoning. I'm conflating that with some of the language from Hebrews 3 and 4, but uh, but the idea is there in Romans chapter 2 in terms of the patience of God, the long-suffering of God leading men to repentance. So let us never abuse 
the patience of God or draw the long con wrong conclusions from the patience of God. Uh, you know, this can go the other way, can't it? I think of uh, uh, Ecclesiastes 8, because punishment is not executed against an evildoer or evil work speedily. Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. So in other words, um, I sinned today, I sinned tomorrow, I sinned last week, nothing happened. Therefore, God must not care. And God must approve the righteous. Something like this happens in the end of Malachi 2, where uh, the Lord accuses the people of speaking evil against him. And they say, oh, how would we spoken evil against you? Well, because you have said that he who is unrighteous is approved of God. In other words, God did nothing, and therefore God must approve the wicked. Or on the other hand, you said, where's the God of justice? So you see what's going on? It's pretty realistic, isn't it? There's either people saying God just doesn't care, and I can live my life how I want. I can be who I want to be. If God doesn't accept me as I am, too bad for him, but nothing's happened to me yet. Or you get the other people basically saying, where's God in all this? What's he doing? And you have both reactions at the same time in, in the text. And so these, these questions, these issues that come out in the prophets are very practical, very personal, very lively. Uh, but don't conclude the wrong thing from the patience of God. In fact, uh, 2 Peter 3 ends this way, doesn't it? Why is the final judgment delayed? God is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Because God is gathering and calling his church, he is patient, and he delays the return of Christ and the final judgment. So we need to remember that. There's a special patience waiting for the calling of the elect. There's also a special patience to the unregenerate, the unconverted, calling them to repentance from those two different texts, applying the idea to two different purposes. Okay, well, that takes us to the end of this section. Any questions, comments before we move on to truthfulness and faithfulness? Um. <clears throat> Did Christ purchase every grace to every creature? Because um, if God's justice is doing essentially what is deserved, and then grace is doing what's not deserved, and yeah. God can't just arbitrarily, uh, you know, we discussed that with justice, just arbitrarily forgive or something like that. There still has to be justice, and so that's what Christ him to accomplish but if even to the reprobate even you know the rain falling that's a grace yeah yeah is that purchased by christ as well well let me put it this way and this is not unique to me this is summarizing others but basically um christ did not purchase saving grace for every creature but every creature experiences grace because of christ's death would that include angels as well? Do you like the angels? Um, yeah, I'm having uh, flashbacks and trauma from uh, Aquinas on the angels now, but um, uh, there's a long, long section on the angels. Um, generally, the church has said yes. Um, not that they're chosen in Christ, 
But um, for example, there may be some implications there saying Colossians 1 and Hebrews 12, especially Colossians 1 with reconciling all things together in heaven and earth. And so uh, by the death of Christ, which the angels don't participate in, you know, Hebrews 2, he didn't take on the nature of angels. There's still a reconciling of all things in heaven and earth, um, including the angelic world. Maybe there, uh, this is where you get into more speculative questions. Maybe their confirmation and their election, that's where Aquinas will go back and forth and say, is that in Christ or not? And if in Christ, then it's not like our in Christ is different, you know. Um, but what is it in particular? But, but I'm more comfortable with the broader implications like, like Colossians 1. But I would say um, <clears throat> what I mean by my opening statement is that um, the eternal son was born Jesus in order to save his people from their sins. And yet, because Christ came to save his people from their sins, there's common grace benefits for the whole world. You know, in a way, I'd liken it to uh, the Noahic covenant as well. Um, you know, you have uh, God saving Noah and his family and preserving the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent perishing. Um, but then there's common grace benefits for the whole world as a result. So it's similar. I mean, usually I would explain the Noahic covenant by appealing to the latter in Christ in 2 Peter 3. Yeah. So it's not that Christ died for everyone, but the grace and patience that all people experience today is on account of Christ. Anything else before we jump to truth and faithfulness? This is probably an elementary question, but when people say that you don't have the love of God towards sinners, when um, you say with both and, you know, Psalm 5, right, God hates the sinners. When people say God loves the sin, or God loves the sin, or hates the sin, that's completely out, out of step with scripture. Yeah, I, I, I want to be careful with it because I, uh, I agree that it's it's sinners who sin. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes we treat our sin as something extrinsic to us. Mm -hmm. It's something that happens to me. I'm the victim, not the sinner. You know, or uh, sin is brokenness. I mean, that's the kind of language that comes into this, which is really basically saying sin is an effect, not an action. Mm -hmm. You know, sin is always a personal action. So, um, you know, I found this goes the other way. Um, for example, uh, with the uh, gay and lesbian community, they would find that statement very offensive, you know, that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Why? Because they say, this is my identity. This is who I am. Now, I think they're right. I think they've got a point. You know, and, and hopefully by the grace of God, we can use that. That is who you are. You are a sinner, and this is what this looks like in your life. And, and you're right to identify with the sin, not to dissociate yourself from the sin. Where we need to be really careful, though, is we don't want to turn around and say, 
you know, instead of God loves you and has a, a wonderful plan for your life, God hates you and has a terrible plan for your eternity. You know, that's not, um, you know, and, and every time I say that in class, people laugh and I understand I do too, <laughs> but I had someone one time who preached on Psalm 139, do I not hate those who hate you? I hate them with a perfect hatred and preached uh, basically in these words, um, God hates you, Christ hates you, and so do I. And until you repent, that's, that's the end. That's not why this is here. That's not why we think through these things. I think what we need to say is, yes, the sinner is the one who sins. The sin is tied to the sinner. God hates the wicked. In some sense, we do too. We love them because they're in the image of God. We pray for them. We plead for them. And, and at, we plead with them. We plead with God for them. We ask God to change their hearts. We weep over their deaths. But we hate those who hate the Lord because we hate the aspect of them that's opposed to God. That doesn't mean we go around saying, well, God told me to hate people. I think we, should, we understand the difference there. Um, we hate the same thing in ourselves. I mean, we... We, we love ourselves in the sense that we surrender ourselves to Christ. We trust in him for our, our highest good. But we also hate that in ourselves as opposed to God. And we'll be thankful to be rid of it when we enter into glory. So I think there's the same dynamic. Um, God loves the sinner and hates the sinner for different reasons. So do we. We're, more, we're prone to abuse the latter half of that equation. God obviously is not. And our bent needs to be mercy. Our bent needs to be love. I think where this comes out is, uh, you know, um, sometimes, you know, for example, I'll hear news things where, you know, uh, there, there are Muslims beheading people and torturing people in some country. And, and I just find myself naturally praying the impregnatory songs. You know, it's always, Lord, change their hearts or wipe them off the face of the earth. Prevent these atrocities against your church and, and these people. Uh, act for your namesake. And I think that's where the scriptures give us a sanctified channel uh, to pray and, and to think through these issues. So we need to balance that. Yeah. Go ahead. Is this at all related to church in this discussion on the justice of God that it's not necessary for the person who sinned to pay the punishment of the sin? Yeah. Um, that gets complicated because there's the difference between uh, solutio eustem, the same uh, punishment, or solutio tentidem, or equivalent punishment. And it gets into um, jurisprudence and legal theories from the time. Um, ultimately, what he's trying to get at, though, is he's explaining why there can be a substitute. And, uh, and I think. I feel like in reading some of those things, you'd find them in Owen as well, um, and many, many others. I understand the categories. I understand what they're doing. I've found in preaching and ministry, it's probably more useful to appeal to the covenant instead. So in other words, there's two great men, Adam and Christ. And Paul writes in Roman or 1 Corinthians 15, as though they're the only two men that ever lived. And you know, you're only in one or you're in the other. 
And so the reason why Christ can substitute is he's the second Adam. So in other words, no one else can. You can't give your life for the soul of a friend. Um, you can't uh, die in their place. And yet Christ can because he's not a normal man. I mean, in some sense he is. He's a human being, but he's, he's the new Adam. And so I, I tend to explain that more in terms of covenant. But what they're trying to do is, given legal categories, how do we actually deal with uh, someone substituting for another? Okay. Well, let's deal with truthfulness and faithfulness of God. Uh, here, we're getting into uh, more directly covenant terms. And I'll try to make that clear and explicit. I've taken a little bit of this from Robert Raymond's systematic theology, though I won't say a lot about what he's got there. Um, I've modified the main, excuse me, parts of the outline with uh, Beaky and Smalley, just so at least you know where I'm coming from. Uh, truth is a big question at the present day. Although it always has been, I guess, on some level, because you know as well as I do that when Jesus was on trial and says that he came to testify to the truth, what does Pilate say? What is true? Uh, what are people saying today? The same thing. And they may have different reasons. They may have a different world in which they live than the one from which Pilate spoke. But the issue is, just like all these other attributes... Unless we begin with God, we lose the ideas themselves. So there's a problem, right? When we deal with analogical language, people want to begin with us and then project the concept of humanity back onto God. And if the human concepts don't fit, maybe there's no God at all. Or maybe there's a God that simply looks a lot like us and does what we would do or helps us cope with life. But when we're dealing with things like, like goodness and righteousness and justice and now truth, this underscores the importance of beginning the analogy with God and working our way down to humanity. Because if there is no God, there is no such thing as good and evil. If there is no God, there is no such thing as truth. And so in a world that doesn't begin its thinking with the God of Scripture, is it any surprise at all that they say what is truth? They can't believe in truth without contradicting their fundamental principles, which, of course, some do. Unbelief is never consistent. Uh, believing worldview or believing system of doctrine, we may say we have holes in our thinking and we have things we don't know and things that we're still praying over and figuring out and things we may never figure out. But unbelieving thought is always self-collapsing and self-contradictory. That goes into apologetics, but obviously the issue of truth becomes important in apologetic context as well. So we're working with a different framework here than the non-believer. We need to begin uh, with God in order to understand truth just as much as good and evil and other questions. So beginning with God, what we're going to see here uh, is when we search the scriptures and search out the meaning of truth. 
fundamentally what Beaky and Smalley take us to that I think is a helpful summary here uh, is that we, we consider truth metaphysically in terms of reality, uh, logically in terms of accuracy, that is, let's say, correspondence to reality, and ethically in terms of fidelity. So in other words, truth can be used in a metaphysical sense as to what things really are. Truth can be described in a logical sense accurately reflecting how things really are. And truth can be described uh, in the sense of faithfulness. And I think the examples we'll look at in scripture will bring out all of those as far as what does it mean that God is a God of truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through him. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth. It takes what belongs to Christ and declares it to us, which is going to be a precursor to some of our Trinitarian theology, where all things are of the Father through the Son by the Spirit. And so the Son takes what he receives to the Father, and he comes to bear witness to the truth. He also is the truth of God. And as the Spirit testifies to the truth, he takes what belongs to the Son and declares it to us because he proceeds from the Son, even as the Son proceeds from the Father. So even these descriptions of truth reflect God's triunity and his order in the Godhead. Well, let's deal with reality first. Uh, the true God is a God of truth. And so sometimes when we talk about truth in scripture, we're talking about uh, metaphysical reality. I've got Voss down here under E, but this point that he makes in this short little article on the word truth in the Gospel of John, that makes the point well. He argues basically that when John uses uh, the term truth, for lack of a better way of putting it, he's referring to the heavenly realm. In other words, the true reality. So in other words, the law came through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting because uh, you, you begin realizing the way John is using these terms may be a little bit different than the way we might tend to. So I've heard people appeal to that text in John 117 and say, see, Moses law, Christ grace, right? Okay, well, if that's what we're getting at, do you want to say Moses lies, Christ truth? Because that's the other side of the context, isn't it? Or the contrast. The law came through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. What does he actually mean? Well, when he says the law came through Moses, I think what he means is the shadows of the heavenly realities. Mm -hmm. You know, if you put a footnote there, it would say, see Hebrews 1 through 13, you know, in terms of what this actually looks like. Not that he had Hebrews in mind in particular, but it's a, it's a vivid illustration of what he's getting at. These are the types, the shadows pointing to the heavenly realities, the heavenly sanctuary. And grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ because Christ fulfills the shadows. Christ embodies the promises that came through the law under Moses. And so this is why he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. This is also why the father is seeking people who will worship him in spirit and in truth, because Christ, to borrow a phrase from Hebrews, is the true and living way to the father. 
And so, again, that goes back to John 4, why I think the Trinitarian reading of that text is the better one, too. Um, that it's not just a matter of truth of scripture and grace in the heart, but it's a matter of by the Holy Spirit in our hearts, through faith in Jesus Christ, we come to the Father, because that's what John says everywhere else. And that's how he stresses truth. So in terms of, of reality, especially in the Gospel of John, this issue of truth is pulling us up, as it were, to the heavenly realms. The pattern after which the earthly copies were made. So uh, metaphysical reality. And in that sense, when we deal with God as the true God or the God of truth, we're also dealing with his aseity, his uniqueness, his oneness, his holiness in the first sense of the term. They're all describing the same reality here. So as the true God, he's the only, uh, the God of scripture is the only true God. Um, let me, uh, let me leave that there for now, other than, um, God reveals his truth, uh, through his word. We dealt with this in the doctrine of scripture, but it's worth just reiterating here. Um, sometimes people will make a big contrast between Christ as the word and scripture as the word. You know, so Karl Barth, for example, will say that, that fundamentally the second person of the Trinity is the word um, and then uh, scripture and then preaching. You know, if you understand that the right way, that's not necessarily bad because I think what we should say is, yes, Christ is the eternal word of God. And scripture is under Christ and comes through Christ and from Christ. But however, that doesn't mean that scripture is not also the word of God, because the word of Christ, and that's where these things go wrong. Um, preaching is the word of God to us because it expounds the scriptures and the, the spirit drives it home. But it's not the word of God in the same way that that scripture objectively is without error, without fault, uh, etc. And yet we need to recognize the truth here that uh, Christ ultimately is the word of God. Christ ultimately is the truth of God. And scripture itself, though inspired by God and though coming to us with divine authority is secondary and temporary. And we won't need it in glory, as I mentioned before. So I'm just reiterating an earlier point here. So we shouldn't undermine the necessity of scripture and the, the vital importance of scripture. But we should also uh, keep Christ as the eternal truth of God, as God's word, primary and first. The next two things are going to bring us more into covenant language. And notice I'm taking Biki and Smalley's outline, but um, adding some key Hebrew terms here. We have truth as accuracy truth as fidelity or faithfulness. Um, two words that perhaps should stand out here would be emet and hesed, which you're likely already familiar with. Uh, they come up all over the place. In your English translations, you can usually identify them as um, uh, God coupling together mercy and truth or goodness and truth. Um, if you look up just Hesed alone, for example, in a Hebrew lexicon, you'll find a big paragraph 
of all the things that, that it can possibly mean. Um, more or less, it refers to God's covenant love or God's covenant faithfulness emet to his trustworthiness, but it can also mean faithfulness. And so these words often are stressing what we can categorize in a broader way as the truth of God. So um, Psalm 117, the, the truth of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. It's one of these key covenant words, emet, I believe there in the context. And what we're dealing with is that God is uh, true. Metaphysically, God is true in terms of uh, his word being uh, accurate or trustworthy, corresponding to reality. But it's also pointing to his faithfulness. Like we, we use the, the phrase, he'll be, he's true to his word, meaning he carried out his word. That's what these terms work uh, function as in a covenant context, Emmet and Hesed. God will not violate his character as the true God by violating his word, which we can depend on. The term truth doesn't apply there or appear, appear there, but um, what I'm describing is the same idea that's present in Hebrews 6 where uh, God is encouraging us with the fact that when he swore to Abraham, uh, he could swear by none greater. And so he swore by himself and therefore by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We have an anchor for our souls, both sure and steadfast, which enters into the presence behind the veil where Jesus, the forerunner, entered for us, et cetera. And, and what you've got going on there is uh, God is the God of truth. What are the two immutable things? It's impossible for God to lie. And to top it off, God took an oath. God doesn't need an oath to confirm his word. If it's impossible for God to lie, that should be enough. We should imitate God in that. We shouldn't need our oaths or our vows to let our yes be yes and our no be no. We should be honest people and we should be people who love truth because our God is a God of truth. And yet at the same time, the author there in Hebrews is saying, uh, not only is, is lying contrary to the nature of God because God is a God of truth, but God took an oath in his own name. And so you can rest in the fact that you are anchored in the heavenly sanctuary in Jesus Christ. And you cannot be ripped from it. And you cannot be pulled away from the gracious presence of God. So keep running. Keep moving forward. Keep looking to Jesus Christ. Keep trusting in him and in the God who cannot lie. In other words, when we're talking about the truth of God, not only as the true and living God, but as uh, his word being accurate, God being faithful, God being trustworthy. The entire gospel is at stake here. If you think about the logic in, in Hebrews chapter six, this is why, you know, and with our kids, you know, it's interesting how uh, the wicked go astray from the womb speaking lies, Psalm 50. Well, even the covenant children being baptized seem to go from the womb speaking lies, at least for a while as well. And that seems to be the universal experience is that children don't need to be taught to lie. 
They learned to do it. They learned to deceive even before my children could talk. I remember one that was six months old sitting in a, a walker and uh, was going for an electrical outlet. I showed him what I wanted. We were doing sign language and licked his hand and he kind of, he knew and he got it. He understood and he went back and happened again. And so he's sitting there complacently and then I go hide around the corner. And you know exactly what happens. He looks this way, he looks that way, he doesn't see me and he lunges for all he's worth trying to commit suicide by putting his hand in the electrical outlet. And you know, the, the issue is, it's there in the heart. And one thing that we've always told our children is God hates lying. Lying is contrary to the nature of God. It's impossible for God to lie. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And when we lie, we sin against the core of the gospel. And lying is very serious. That doesn't just apply to the children. It applies to us, too. We should love truth. We should value truth. And we should pursue it and, and be biased in favor of the truth. I've cited a Hebrews 6 example. There's a similar one in Titus chapter 1 uh, with the God who cannot lie, being tied to the promises of the gospel there. I don't want to derail us here. Um, but, uh, this is relevant to certain ethical questions. For example, people ask the question or, or, well, well, one of my sons, my, my 13 year old just had, uh, a debate to do this last, uh, semester on, is there a justified lie? And it was in relation to a book they were reading, actually the hiding place where, uh, some of you may be familiar with it. Um, where the people, uh, well, one sister lied uh, to save Jewish people from being arrested by the Nazis. The other sister actually told the truth, and uh, the Nazis didn't believe her and spared the Jews anyway. Um, so the question comes up, you know, what's the right thing? Is there a justified lie? Well, let me at least, without getting into a huge ethical discussion, give some basic principles that are food for thought. I've already said at the outset, God's holiness is the standard for our holiness. God's righteousness is the standard for our righteousness. God's justice should guide human justice. God's goodness defines what good and evil are. Uh, God's truth determines how we relate to truth and how we relate to truth-telling. If God's character determines righteousness, and we're to be imitators of God as dearly beloved children, how can something be righteous with us that's impossible to God? I think that's the basic premise that we need to begin with. It's impossible for God to lie. Satan's the father of lies, but it's righteous for us to imitate Satan rather than God. I, I can't get past that. Now, I will say this. There are very clear instances in scripture where people are not obligated to give the whole truth, such as in warfare. So you, you pretend like you're retreating and they think you're leaving, but you really want them to fall into an ambush. And that's different than actually speaking words that contradict the truth, which I believe the scripture never approves. The questions are going to come up with like the Hebrew midwives and things like that. Um, but again, 
Just think about that one example, and I know I won't be able to go into all of them, but just the one. People say the midwives lied to save the children, and God blessed them. You know, that's not what the text says. Pharaoh already knew they saved the children. Why did they lie? To save their own necks. Why did God bless them? Because they kept the children alive. And I would say, is it really that hard to imagine, that especially when you're reading the Old Testament and the historical narratives, that there are good people who do bad things? And it's not raising the question of what should they do and you know that type of thing. That one might be a little different because the children aren't at stake anymore. The children have already been saved. Pharaoh already knows. The real issue is, are they going to live or die? And that's, that's the bottom line. Um, it's one thing to deal with ourselves. I think the harder ethical questions are, what about saving life? What about dealing with other people? Mm -hmm. um, but all I'm saying is uh, when we think about ethics, when we think about how we live our lives, we have to begin with the character of God first and then fit all the other details into perspective. Whatever position you take on this particular issue, I think that's the main challenge is, is begin with the character of God uh, and then work through the rest of the examples in light of it. Don't begin uh, with the examples and work back into the character of God. So God is a God of truth. The gospel hinges on God's uh, Emmet and Hesed, which both relate to this broad concept of truth or uh, accuracy in his word, faithfulness to his promises. So we have to rest on them. All right. Well, I think, I think I've said enough there. I know we only have 10 minutes left, but we're getting to the will of God. We might not quite finish it. We'll get really close. At least we'll get through the main uh, parts of it. Of course, will is a super easy issue, right? <laughs> so, any other uh, questions? Go ahead, David. Uh, it's just it's interesting that you brought uh, that we're talking about this because you now Kirk and I were I think we were talking about is there a justified lie a couple of weeks ago um, in regards to what if police come to your door and say are you hiding Christians or and can you are, can you lie? In order to save life, do they forfeit their right to know the truth because they're contradicting God's law? Um, I, I was doing some digging, and John Murray takes the same stance as you. That yeah, you and most most authors up until the 19th century do as well. And in and, and principles of uh, conduct, John Murray says that if you look at uh, Rahab, she ne she never gets commended for her lying. Right. She gets commended for receiving the spies and the fear of the Lord. Right. To Hebrews. So I, it's, it's, I'm just saying it's, it's interesting that, we, that we're talking about this and that we start with God's character. We start with God, because, yeah. You know, this, this is, you know, even during chapel, talking with someone like Ruben, you know, people going from village to village looking specifically yeah. for Christians, what do you do? Yeah, and, yeah. And how you process that. So. Yeah. Well, and again, um, what I'm what I'm advocating is not that all the truth is due to all people at all times, as much as um, we can't explicitly lie. We can give some information, not other information. We can, you know, 
um, we can withhold the truth from those to whom the truth is not due, but we can't explicitly lie and, and break, um, break the commandment with our speech. So the, the ethical side of things is where things get, get stickier. Um, and a lot of times we may be called to suffer for the truth. You know, in other words, uh, we may protect someone else's life and lose our own for refusing to give information to people who are threatening. That may be one outcome there. Do, do, do people forfeit their right to know the truth when they are knowingly contradicting God's law? Like telling a, a police officer, for instance, or a Boko Haram magistrate, for lack of a better term, uh, who demands you know, the, the people that you may be har harboring, can it be told them that you forfeit the right to know, you know the truth? I mean, obviously, it gives you away. Yeah, we don't, I mean, we don't, um, I'm making a difference between telling the truth and lying, and I'm saying we don't lie, mm -hmm. but we also don't tell all the truth to everyone. So we, it is legitimate in some cases to say to, to give you that information, I would break God's law. I can't give you that information. I'm withholding the truth. Um, but that's different than an outright lie. Yeah. I mean, just like if somebody tries to rob me and asks me to give them my bank account number, I'm not obligated to say, here's my bank account number. I'm also not uh, not going to to lie. I'm just going to say that's not not yours to have. You know, I mean, you have other factors there too, other things to think about. Um, so that's why I say I know the ethical questions get get pretty broad here. My main exhortation is to always start with the character of God and work everything into it because I think that's how we do everything else too. Well, let me try to deal with the will. As I said, we might go a few minutes over. I won't keep you much, but just, just maybe a little bit. Um, let's deal with, with the will of God. Um, I'm reminded immediately of the children's catechism. Uh, can God do all things? Yes, he can do all his holy will. It's quite a simple way of putting it. And the scriptures say something similar, don't they? Uh, I actually just read this this morning in God's providence, but Psalm 115, um, God is uh, seated above the heavens and he can do all his will. He can do whatever he pleases is the phrase I'm looking for. So God can do all of his holy will is really a paraphrase there. Uh, he does whatever he pleases. Now, again, God's will reflects his character reflects his nature. We already got into the, the issue with Aquinas and Scotus over the relation of the attributes to the will. Um, the will in us is typically a faculty and God doesn't have faculties exactly like we do, but there is something about us that reflects him and corresponds to him. And in terms of the will, the Bible certainly does use the term will frequently regarding God and doesn't. Um, God works all things according to the counsel of his will in Ephesians 1.11. Or again, going back to Lamentations 3, who is he who speaks and it comes to pass 
when the Lord has not commanded it. It's in Hebrew, it's Old Testament, it's different than, say, Ephesians, but the same idea lies behind this. God has done what he wanted to do. God has fulfilled his will. It's from the mouth of the Lord that both woe and well-being proceed, says Jeremiah. And of course, uh, we are called to willingly embrace Jesus Christ and to not be ignorant, but to know what the will of the Lord is and other statements like this throughout the Bible. The question of the will often becomes difficult and often becomes controversial for one simple reason, the human will. In other words, people come with presuppositions about what our will is and how it is free and often rule out God's sovereign will because we presuppose that we have autonomy. We presuppose that if God is sovereign, if God wills all things that come to pass, then we're no longer free. So our will encroaches on God's will. And again, like I said with the truth question, let God be true and every man be a liar. Let's begin with God. Let's begin with what the scriptures say about him and then see where we fit rather than the other way around. And this is the right way to approach all these issues when we think about the attributes of God, when we think about ethics in general. The other question, though, is uh, if God wills all things, what about evil? What about sin more specifically? Um, also, practical questions arise. How do I know the will of God for my life? How do I know what God wants me to do in these particular circumstances? And in all of these ways, people don't realize it, but we're actually using will in different senses all the time. And what I want to try to do in the time we have left is try to unravel some of the senses and, and talk about the will of God in relation to the will of man. So first, when we think about the will of God, the basic point we're going to look at is God's will is free and immutable. In other words, if as Thomas says, the will of God reflects and logically follows the attributes, just in our conception, not in God himself, not really, but the way we think, then what we see is uh, God's will reflects his character, doesn't it? reflects all the attributes. So if God is autonomous, God is self-existent, God is free, God is immutable, his will is going to reflect his character. So the first thing we see about the divine will, and a lot of this is uh, summarizing the Westminster Standards. I also have a uh, summary for you of, of Polanus and the footnote, who's uh, in Latin, so I've given you my, uh, my English interpretation here, a summary of about three or four pages there. Um, but the divine will is free. In other words, not constrained by any. God is always free to act in character, to act as himself. He's not limited by his circumstances. And I may say I... Um, I want to be a surfer and I may live in the mountains and it's just not going to happen. 
right? Or we want a lot of other things that may be limited by our creaturely circumstances or where we live and, and things like that. God's will is free. God is the freest being because he has all power and he can do whatsoever he pleases, going back to Psalm 115. Uh, God's will is one. What this means is there's uh, a uniqueness to God's will, like we talked about the oneness of God. But we can also apply this to the Trinity. Will is attached, as we said before, to nature, not person. There are two wills in Christ because he has two natures, divine and human. But there is one will in the Trinity because there's one nature. And so everything God does is from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. Even later in the course, when we talk about things like the covenant of redemption, we have the plan of redemption originating with the Father, effected by the Son who agrees to become man, and completed and perfected by the Spirit who equips him for his work and whom the Father gives to him to give to the church. But it's a single willing of God in a threefold way. And in everything God does, we'll see the same thing. That all three persons are engaged, respecting their personal properties and their order of procession, but ultimately one single will of God. So when Jesus says, not my will be done, but yours be done, uh, there is a human submission to the Father, not a divine one, because there's one will of God. It's free, it's one, it's eternal. So Ephesians 1 is a good example of that, where God works all things according to the counsel of his will. If you read it back in the paragraph, what he's getting at is eternal predestination, eternal election, and the explanation as to how this comes to pass in time with the Son coming to die for us, the Spirit sealing us for uh, the day of redemption, is that God works all things according to the counsel of his own will. So his counsel is free, his counsel is one, his counsel is eternal, his counsel is immutable, because God is free and one and eternal and also immutable. I won't say much about that one and, and we could add text to it, but I think what we've done with the other attributes is probably sufficient. God's will is also good. And this is before we get into questions of how do I know what God wants me to do? How does God's will relate to evil? Uh, we're beginning with what is God like? So what is his will like? Well, if God is good, his will is good. And whether I understand how this relates to the existence of sin and evil in the world, this is the starting point. I don't say let man be true and God be a liar. I say let God be true and every man be a liar. We justify God rather than man. The divine will terminates on God. What that really means is that God is his own end, his highest good so to speak. So this is going to set the stage for things like there's no God looking down the corridors of time. 
and seeing and knowing that you would believe. So because he knew you would choose him, he chose you first. Beat you to it because he knew it was going to happen. It's not how this works. God's will terminates on God. God chooses some in Jesus Christ before time began, or to take up Paul's argument, predestination election is a good way to illustrate this, though it's not the only thing to say. Um, but again, Romans 9, um, before the children were born, before they'd done any good or evil, but that the purpose of God according to election might stand. God said, Jacob, have I loved Esau, have I hated. God doesn't punish Esau unjustly. Esau is a sinner. But God wants to make vessels of wrath fitted for destruction that he might show the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. And so, again, what we're talking about is this instance of the will of God in election predestination is the way it is because God's eternal will and his eternal decree is the way it is. It's free. It's one. It's eternal. It's immutable. It's good. And it terminates on God, and ultimately, it's irresistible. In other words, what God has foreordained will come to pass. Lamentations 3 again, who is he who speaks that comes to pass? The Lord has not ordered it. Is it not from the mouth of the Lord that woe and well-being proceed? Isaiah 48, I believe, I am the Lord. I form the light. I create darkness. I make peace. I create calamity. I am the Lord who does it. So whatever the Lord says will happen, which is going to raise all the practical questions of how we think through this. Let me just finish this part, and then we'll stop because I'm almost there. Um, typically, older theologians would distinguish between uh, the will of God or the works of God, which are often tied together ad intra and ad extra. In other words, terminating on God with respect to himself ad intra and terminating on the creation with respect to others and other things, which is ad extra. And in this regard, uh, we need to be careful with the way we put this, but God's uh, will is necessary with reference to himself. And what I don't want to say is that the divine persons are merely a free choice of God or act of his will. The persons are intrinsic to God. God is triune. And the persons are identical with the Godhead in that regard, conceptually distinct, but really the one true and living God. But what we are getting at is God always wills to be like himself which is that God is both unbegotten, begotten, and uh, proceeding from Father and Son. But with respect to everything outside of himself, uh, everything is contingent, everything is free. Uh, God doesn't have to create the world. He's sufficient and complete without it. God doesn't have to save sinners or confirm angels who never fell. God freely chooses to do whatsoever he pleases. And whatsoever he pleases will come to pass. The issue of evil, unfortunately, comes more fully under the creation man and sin course. It will come up here a little bit as we begin next week. 
Um, but let me just introduce the, the distinctions. When we talk about the will of God at this point, we recognize that we need to have some careful categories because on the one hand, we recognize that what God wills comes to pass. Who is he who speaks and comes to pass? The Lord has not commanded it or ordered it. It's from the Lord's mouth, woe and well-being proceed. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. And yet at the same time, God hates all workers of iniquity. God does not commit sin. God does not approve sin. And God commands his people to do many things that they break all the time. Not just his people, but all people. And quickly, what we learn in scripture is there are at least two categories for understanding the will of God. There are categories that describe what he will do, which could include things like we can't, that we can't imitate, such as um, using evil events to bring good purposes. We don't do evil that good may come. God never does evil, but he can use the evil of his creatures to bring about good. That's unique to God. And there's a difference between that and, say, the Ten Commandments. These are things that God wants you to do. There are not more than one will in God, but in our perception, there's a difference between what he will do and what he will have us do. Both reflect his character. He always acts in character, and he calls us to imitate his character as we're able to. So maybe just to introduce the terms and begin by explaining them next time. Uh, four categories, really three, because the first and the fourth coincide quite a bit. Uh, sometimes people just... Thank you for tuning in to this production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, please visit gpts.edu.